We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast, presented to you by BetUS. We are so thrilled that you are tuned in. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. If my voice sounds a little bit different, it's because I spent too much time in the swamp on Saturday yelling things. Both good and bad, Alan. Lots of excitement, lots of things to cover. How do you feel post this first college football weekend for the Gators? It was a great college football weekend overall. We were excited about the games. A lot of them delivered. And yeah, there, as we always say, there's never a boring Gator season. I'm really excited to talk about this game in particular. Uh, despite kind of a maybe flat score, like not a most exciting score, there's a ton to discuss from this game. Yeah, and kudos to the students. We've spent many years discussing how the students really had been not a large part. They held their own, Alan. They were probably the most crowded section in the stadium. They stayed for a long duration of the game. So kudos to the UF students for maybe, maybe setting the stage for a solid season of student support if the team does their duty, of course. Either way, great to see that. It was great to tailgate all day Saturday, to socialize, to watch full stadiums across the country, to be back together with people again. Uh, there was a lot there that I think just felt great to be back with people. Uh, that there was something special, I think, about having people together like that. I'm sure if you were out and about, you felt that. Uh, and obviously, if you're unable to do those things based upon COVID or other things, I think we all can agree that we hope, of course, this stuff will be behind us totally at some point in time soon in the future where it's entirely you know, safe, as far as safe in the world can be, to go out and enjoy the fellowship of others. So that was a special night in the swamp. Great time to watch a lot of college football. Uh, As always, Alan and I are so thrilled that you're listening to this very podcast. If you're new, welcome. If you're a veteran, thanks so much for all of your time, effort, and support. If you like the content on this show, follow us on social media. Check us out on YouTube. I will be posting, depending on when you listen to this, I've already posted the breakdown on FAU uh, and become a patron on Patreon where you can support us with a dono. 
uh, for our efforts. Of course, we love and appreciate that. And if you don't support us, we love and appreciate you as well. We had some new patrons over the week. Alan coming in at a small dono level. We've got Nicholas Dunn with an annual small dono, Cody Jordan, Samuel Elliott, and then Patrick Moore upgrading a dollar for each win of the season. So he went from two to three and then three to four, and then he'll just keep going for each win that we get, which is fun. We love the creative dono categories. If you have not been on Patreon, you can name whatever dono level you want. We provided some for you. Medium dono, we have brand new Connor McManus. Welcome, Connor. Great to have you. XL Dono's familiar face with a big level up from David Sugar, stepping up to that 20 bucks a month level. And then Jamie Galano, he goes from the CJ McWilliams Dono to 56 bucks a month in the DeLance Dono. And he wrote us a note, Alan, and he said, I hope that each time you see DeLance and something potentially bad happens, you think of this Dono that it helps you ease the pain. That's fantastic. That's an all-time Dono uh, comment and level. I mean, it's darkly humorous, but nonetheless very humorous. It's amazing. Uh, again, we love the interaction with regards to this. And Alan, news. breaking news in the Gator Nation football podcast owner world. We have a new king, better known as Brian, last name that's difficult to pronounce. So he told us we're going to call him Double O. That's what his friends call him. Double uh, O also, military guy. So thank you for your service, Double O, and huge Gator fan has unseated Alexander Leventhal, the man, the myth, the legend himself. We used to give a notice, Alan. So like, for example, if one of you this week outdoes double O in bidding, you'll just get something from me that says, hey, you're the new king. And I don't tell double O. And that was Alexander's idea so that the new king or the old king couldn't just reign forever. So we had, there we have it. We've got a new king on the throne. It's wonderful times. And Alan, as always, you're going to read out all those people that are in the king's throne room with their $300 plus of total support in their lifetime. Including the aforementioned Alexander Leventhal and a former king himself, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kaine, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Honderick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, and newly added here, I guess, double O, but since he's on the throne, we won't read him every week since he gets the shout out at the top, as long as he remains there, but he's in there regardless. First time as a legend. Welcome. All right, so the Gators win 35-14. Alan, my score was 40-13. Your score was 32-13. Seems like we had a pretty I should do good this professionally. Yeah, seems like we had a pretty good feel on the score. Uh, generally, actually, you and I historically have been very close on the Gator scores in games. Which, yeah, I will say we didn't get there how I thought we might get there. We probably should have had more, as we'll get into it. But uh, yeah, we were pretty close there. Yeah, pretty close with the score. Vegas again, very close. Twenty-three and a half point spread. Florida does not cover the spread. You picked them not to cover. Well done. I picked them to cover. Not well done by me. Keys to the game, as a quick revisit of what we said, Alan, you had Emery at the number of carries being 10, or he wanted well, to see what, how many would he have. He had 10, he had 10. how many would he have? How important would they be? How well would he run? And then could we, on a defense, get more than two takeaways? We got two, exactly, two fumbles. And then I had rushing yards. Would we have 300 or more rushing yards? We did. Which we did. That was important. How many sacks and turnovers would we have? A plethora of sacks. The D-line sacks. delivered. We picked up two turnovers. 
Um, one that was obviously well earned with the strip sack for sure. But really, all in all, a lot of stuff to unpack in this game beyond just the score. If you just happen to catch the score line, you missed everything. Ton of stuff to discuss for this one. So my opening thought first was about how did it feel to be back in the swamp. We talked about this, but I will say lingering from this game, the biggest buzz in the stadium by far every time was in our backup quarterback came in. So this feels like a weird moment where you're like burying the lead. Cause I'm going to start to talk about the backup quarterback, but I think that's what everyone left talking about thinking about was how electric Anthony Richardson was the buzz in the stadium. Every time he snapped the ball, I was going to leave a little early, which I never, ever do because we had a babysitter. We were out kind of late. I was like, I can't leave because they might put him back in the game with like a minute left and let him do some stuff. And they did that. That brought us to the hurdle, all kinds of fun stuff, throwing the ball deep. That's what I'm thinking about here on Monday afternoon. What about you? Same thing. If you were in the swamp and you stayed for that fourth quarter, I've watched a lot of sports in person, and so have you, Alan. A lot of sports consumption. Played a lot of sports in my life. Been around a lot of sporting events in my life. There are only so many times when there's a buzz like that. When there's a guy so special on the field, at least in that game. Especially at the point of the game where there's nothing on the line. If you see from there, we're just people are just stuff's happening. We're running, we're punting. It doesn't matter. That. There's something electric about him. I keep using that word, but I think everyone would say something similar. Well, there's there's guys and there's guys like this, right? Tim Tebow, his freshman year, it's great. Hold your breath when he came in. Percy Harvin, every time he touched the ball, and we can go on and on and on. Will Greer during the old Miss game, like when Greer just started to light the world on fire, the touchdown to Brandon Powell, like there's just feeling in the air. But but Anthony Richardson. Should I say this? I'm going to say it. Okay, what are you going to say? There might be even more electricity. This guy is the guy you create in a video game, Alan. And you True. give him all 99s. Cannon for an arm. 4-4, legit, not made up, not high school coach timing you 4-4. 4-4, laser timed 40. Huge guy. Juke moves. Awareness. Great teammate. He doesn't even seem real, but when you were in the stadium, it just felt like... Something different was happening. Again, it's not that often you feel that. That's not to say that Richardson is going to become whatever we may think. But for for that night against FAU, if you were there, there was a buzz that was going about that stadium that is not normal. And Florida's had a lot of great players. Yeah. So really a unique time to be in there. And as you mentioned, Alan, the really the first three quarters of the game were not fun. It was frustrating. It was flat. By the time we reached the fourth quarter, a lot of Gator fans had, frankly, had enough. We did not look good. Things did not look good. And then the game ended on this high note where I left, like, euphoric. I don't know. It was it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, rather pedestrian. You know, not, I wouldn't say bad. There's some mistakes. There's some disappointments, right? Overall, the team is playing well. We're not in danger of losing to FAU most of the time, right? But not anything you'd be necessarily excited about considering the overmatched opponent. Um. Yeah, and we're gushing about Richardson here, obviously, and he's played very few plays. He could turn out to be a guy that, you know, five years from now we, like, largely forget about except for that moment in the swamp. But Saturday night, he looked like that kid in, like, Little League in Pee Wee football where he's the same age, but 
people are asking for his birth certificate because he's just running over everybody. It's not fair to the other players. It's like, we shouldn't allow this kid to play because he's so much more physically dominant than everyone else. On that run, late in the fourth quarter, where he jukes a guy, sheds one guy, another guy, a big guy for FAU who's pretty good, has him wrapped up, slides right home. You don't even see Anthony Richardson move. It's like the guy wasn't there, and then he hurdles that guy like it was nothing. It didn't even look like it was hard. He was like hopping over a one-foot box. I don't know. I, As you said, I've watched a lot of sports. I don't remember many performances like that where it made me, every time he was in the game, I'm on my feet. I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. Okay, enough about him. We'll come back to him later. Leaving the game, though, just kind of big picture. How did you feel about the performance overall? I felt mixed, but I felt good about a lot of individual players I saw. Okay. And so one of the things we said coming into the game, or I said coming into the game especially, was I wanted to see if our overall talent is, in fact, better at some places, if it looks like we're stepping forward in certain directions. And then secondly, I wanted to see what did our scheme look like? Have we learned anything on defense? Have we done things differently? Obviously, how does Emery play? Is he different than what I've talked about on this podcast and put on film? So mixed because, spoiler alert, Emery was what we've said all along. Uh, you know, I got, I got a few DMs and emails this past week like, hey, I don't understand why maybe you can't be more positive and et cetera, which always comes across my desk as someone who, you know, I think really cares about the players and the athletes and they're, they're frustrated that maybe I have to say something that I feel in my opinion is definitive, Alan. Uh, but I think in fairness to this very show, we frequently celebrate players all the time. But sometimes there's players that get in positions that are prominently playing a lot that we have to discuss a lot and it can feel unbalanced. But in this case, mixed. Emery looked what really I thought he would look like. And we'll break down. And, and then we're going to get into minutes, that. Yeah. Grantham's defense looked like what I thought it would look like. But individual players gave me significant reason for, hey, we have some some solid players. We have some guys that we can go to, that we can utilize. And the age-old question of why this podcast exists comes back up, which is, well, do we utilize them correctly? What will happen? How will that happen? That's all to be discussed. But mixed feelings in that we have some players. We have some new faces, some new guys that can really play, one being Richardson. A bunch of others will chronicle and there's a lot of units on our team that also look really good. So there's a lot about this team that's solid, uh, but there are still plenty of questions that we're going to have to answer if we want this team to be anything other than just a, a college football season for the Gators that goes down as a season you went to and watched first being something more memorable. Well said. I, I do think watching Emory play left you feeling like there's a ceiling on this offense, right? It can be very effective, but yeah. I mean, after the joy ride that was the offense last year, I think we're all expecting it, but still seeing it live, you, there's that little bit of wiggle room that maybe it looks different. But some good things for me, you know, just briefly on the defense. Did they line up on time? Did they communicate better? Yes, that was better. So that was a big question mark. Is there going to be more of that? And then the unit that we've talked about a lot, and we'll get into them, the offensive line checked a lot of boxes for me. I've left the game very encouraged by their play and the results. Again, not a perfect unit, but way, way better than last year as a 
as of game one. Now they've got to continue to prove it in a lot of different variety of situations and against much better opponents. But there were times last year where they were incapable of doing that against opponents that we were theoretically severely, they were severely overmatched by. So, um, yeah, so some some question marks were checked in the positive direction as well as the ne- negative direction. Um, but let's get into the game itself. Let's start with the offense as we typically do. A lot of rushing here. 400 yards rushing. I think it was the most under the Dan Mullen era. Only 153 yards passing. This is basically the inverse of last year. 8.7 yards per rush. So the offense, like we thought, was committed to running the ball that were run forward first. And that's what we saw. Well, we threw the ball, you know, 35 plus times just True. with very limited success. Obviously I had the two picks, you know, four for six in the red zone on offense, 10 for 16 on third down, which is really good. We converted a lot of third downs running even yes. long ones, which was solid. And uh, as we dive into the numbers here, you know, top line numbers, Emery wound up being 17 of 27 for 113 passing yards, something we had talked about when we were discussing, well, how many receiving yards will our receivers have this season? This is kind of what you're seeing, right? You could be a great receiver and we're going to unpack this. Were our receivers open? Were they doing the right thing? If your quarterback cannot deliver you the ball, I don't care who you are. You're going to have a hard time having a good year. And Emory struggled obviously in this game. Uh, our, Our boy, Bobby Boucher, different name of course in real life but he goes about Boucher had sent me a, a compiled stat that Emery was three of 12 on balls that traveled further than five yards with his two picks had two delayed games in the red zone obviously ran the wrong play on the fourth down in the red zone which we'll talk about and if you remove the yards after catch Allen Emery actually only threw for 23 air yards 23 air yards on 27 attempts so the question I have for you, and a question I think a lot of people are asking for Gator Nation, is this uh, nothing to see here? It's game one. He's inexperienced. Uh, he was nervous. He'll bounce back, uh, make a change. Do you think this is just sort of a first game, there's maybe more to come, kind of write it off thing, or, or is there real cause for concern here? I have very little doubt that much would change. Now, he could he be better by percentages? Yes. But I don't think he's going to overnight change who he is. So the first game jitters is a real thing. So that that kind of thing results in. Uh, do you remember the first time Will Greer came in? He he like it was like a five yard little hitch route or something, and he bounced it to the guy, and everyone was like, "Ugh." I totally think that that's if it's your first time playing, and you're like you're feeling it, and you go, "Okay, all right, I'm fine." And then he started throwing darts around the field, right? If the first ball out of your hand is wonky, that's pregame jitters. Or you call the wrong play or, you know, something happens. But it's he's consistently inconsistent. On the throws over the middle, he's extremely inaccurate. On those crossers, on those um, timing routes. I mean, he threw one good ball to Copeland and a lot of other bad balls. Um, I, I couldn't possibly play in the blame this on pregame jitters. Now he could be better. He definitely could be better, but he's not going to suddenly ascend to a whole nother level because, because of pregame jitters. I do expect him to play better next week, but yeah, I, I, this is the classic. He is who he thought, who we said he was. He is who he thought he is, whatever, however that expression goes. And we let him off the hook. 
Uh, yeah, that is that is a great you know Denny Green comment, obviously when he was with the Cardinals. But to me, Alan, and we 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 spoke at length about this the podcast. Now I think this is year six for us, something like that, five or six. So we've seen a lot of different quarterbacks: Treon Harris, Will Greer, you know, all the ones you can start naming, right? Uh, Kyle Trask, Franks, etc. Appleby. I mean, so, Luke Del Rio, so, many. so many. And every time I, I go on and I say, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for technical skills that are repeatable. And so Trask comes in over Franks. And the MO on Franks was he was a good first read thrower, which he was. If, Fra- if Franks' first read was there, he could throw it. If it wasn't there, stuff was not good. Still had a strong arm. Uh, would still try to throw balls reasonably on time. But just did not have really a feel for reading uh, the field. He's now he's in the NFL right now on a roster, right with the Falcons. I think largely because he still has a cannon forearm, and because he does hit his first read, which will give you promise that if he can figure out where to go with the football, he can be accurate. Kyle Trask comes in and immediately displayed a bunch of technical skills that we said on this very podcast right away led me to believe that that was repeatable every single week. Emery is precisely the opposite. Right now, Emery now has enough snaps on film, including this game, Alan, where his technical skills are so lacking, there's no reason to believe that he's going to be consistent as an actual quarterback. Can he play a little better? Sure. But his variance level is narrow and it's skewed negatively, heavily. He's not a good passer. He's not an SEC-level passer. If what he did against FAU is somewhere near his baseline or norm, he's not a Division I football passer. And that's not to be harsh on him. That's just an analysis of his footwork, of how he finishes his throws, of his eye placement, of how he reads the field, his feel for the pocket. And those are all things we've seen consistently. Look, what does this mean, Alan? I want to talk about this for just a second. Emery was a four-star quarterback coming out of high school. He's looked upon favorably. Does this mean that everybody was wrong? No, like Emery's a dual-threat, talented guy who struggled to throw the ball accurately and on time. In high school... If you're an athlete the caliber of Emery, which he was always a phenomenal athlete who has a very strong arm, you're making very simple throws, you're generally not reading the field, and you're running around. Now you enter this level, FAU's defense, as we talked about, was competent. They were they were in position. They did not make things easy on Emery. And if you're not comfortable repeating the technical skills it takes to be a quarterback, Allen, it's very hard to be successful. We said the same thing for Treon Harris. Now, Emery is better than Treon Harris, but the point is like, that's why Treon Harris didn't magically get better. He didn't transfer and all of a sudden light the world on fire. You have to have some base set of skills. So for Emery, the troubling thing for me is the hope was he comes out against FAU and he's had all this extra time and the time in the system and in his off season, he's the number one guy and he comes out and look at this, he's doing things. But the reality is you can't escape your technical skills. That's true in every sport. You are who your skills say you are in the long run. And right now, Emory's skills say he's not an SEC caliber quarterback. That's just clearly what they say. That's my opinion, of course, right? I always know it's our opinion on this show. My opinion is, you know, his skills are not an SEC level quarterback. I don't think that's a difficult conclusion to come to. We're going to talk about perhaps why maybe Dan Mullen is not going to come to that conclusion. But for now... On film, that is the clear and escapable conclusion that I think anybody would come to if they were critically and analytically looking at what's out there. So here, let's stay on the Emory topic. This is the headline topic from this game. Here's the positives for Emory for the most part, right? 
has command of the playbook, can get you in and out, can make some changes, right? He did this to the positive. Let me flip the play side. You know, he's not going to just totally blow you up, right? The offense was, I'll say, capable under him, right? They move the ball. The running game works. He's making the right handoffs. You know, they can probably run every play, as Dan would say. There's not this whole section of, like, he's not comfortable with if I call that in, does he even know what it is yet, right? He can throw the screens. They're not perfect. He can throw little bubbles. He he knows what to do with the ball on the short, like, swing passes, right? But anytime they made him anticipate throwing into windows, right? There's a couple times where it's a dig route, and he puts on the guy with velocity, and it's a nice play, right? But if he has to anticipate throwing into windows, reading the defense, right? They didn't even ask him to read the defense very much. And when he had to, it seemed like he couldn't. Both of his interceptions were incredibly bad, and we'll get to those, right? Stuff not like, oh, man, they tricked him or the ball came out funny. Just two very, very bad throws and bad reads. So you're, when you talk about technical skills, there's a side of like your mechanics, your foot placement, your arm angles, all that stuff. There's also the, I guess we put these under technical skills of can you process and read and how fast can you do that? Again, for all of Kyle Trask's strengths, I think this is up there, right? His anticipation, his diagnosis of the defense, right? And Emily can do that some. He knew where to go with the ball sometimes, but then he couldn't accurately hit Whittemore or Copeland on those crossers or all those slants. And if you can't do that in this offense with his skill set, it's incredibly limiting. I'm not sure really, to be frank, that I've seen Emery be able to read anything at all. And in fact, most of the routes on film, if you check out the YouTube channel, you'll see them were one option routes. Right. They were running dummy routes everywhere else. You've well, never they gave seen them that two on one in the, it was a high low. And that's the pick, which we're going right. to talk about. And, and maybe twice they gave him like a chance to have a, another read. Of course, everyone's running a route out there. Right. But if you really watch the play versus you can watch it, you can go to our YouTube channel and watch last year's stuff with Trask and see what it looks like when you have five routes that all make sense that are readable. And when you have Emory routes. Now, that's not we've said this before. I don't want to. Kyle Trask was unbelievably special. He was an NFL quarterback brain in a college quarterback. It's a bad playing. comp. Yes. No one is going to look like that. And I mean, nobody looks like that. You get Joe Burrows of the world, Kyle Trask of the world. But most guys have to be a little more limited. You have to limit their reads some. But typically, you're going to get maybe two, maybe three reads on one side. With Emory, was pretty much the ball's going here. And as you mentioned, even on his screen plays, ball placement was terrible. He's basically getting the least from each play as a quarterback. And look, a quarterback... Rule number one is you have to be an accurate thrower, even on a bubble screen. A bubble screen can be two yards or 20 yards. Florida left a lot on the table. Now, there's a lot of discussion to be made, like what happens in the future. But I think, Alan, what I want to say is this. When we evaluate quarterbacks on this show, and you, you, you alluded to this, the definition of technical skills is all those things you mentioned. It's reading, post-snap, pre-snap, processing information, footwork, ball placement, Right. Uh, all the little things that it takes to be a quarterback. It's all of those things. We're going to put those all into technical skills, even though technically some are soft skills, because those are the skills when you see quarterbacks have them, you can get excited that they can develop and grow. And lastly, and we'll talk more broadly about the game in a second, Emory Jones is not a freshman. He's not a sophomore. This is a good point. He's played a lot. And if you're in the camp where you're thinking, well, you have to give him time, well, I would challenge you to take a look across the country at other quarterbacks that had extremely successful debuts and they hadn't played college football yet. Bryce Young at Bama. We can go on and on, right? 
or guys who came out and did not have good debuts despite being in systems for a long time. Just because you're in a system for a long time doesn't mean you're going to actually be good at those things if you don't have the skills. And here is the hard thing about life, Alan. I have no doubt that Emory Jones has not tried as hard as he possibly can to become all that he can as a quarterback. I don't doubt that for a second. That's why this stuff is hard. But the bottom line is Dan Mullen, and we're going to talk about this more too, in my opinion, his job is to do what's best for all 100 plus guys on the team. And that means that if guy A is not putting stuff on film that's as good as guy B, and he's not in practice doing equal to or better than guy B, you have to let guy B be the guy. Otherwise, you're telling your team, hey, you know what I reward? I reward longevity and loyalty. And if you stay here, you're going to play even if the guy behind you is better. And that weakens the team. But that's hard. I don't want to go away from how hard it is with human nature. And we're going to talk about this in a strategy session here in a bit. But I just want to get to it now because I know it's a thought process for a lot of people. This is not... I don't enjoy coming on a podcast and saying, hey, Emory Jones is lacking as a quarterback. I know how much he's given to this university and to his teammates and to himself. But at some point, the hard reality of sports is you're playing for each other and you're playing to win the game. And right now, it's safe to say, Alan, that this team can't win anything of significance with Emory. And maybe we can't with anyone else on the roster. That's a good point. But at this stage, it's really hard to find columns in the the pro start Emory situation that aren't really very like least common denominator low level functioning non-top 15 top 10 talent team answers and I think that's where you have to be serious with yourself and say what are we even doing fielding a football team with guys that have top 15 talent if we're not going to try to play a guy who may potentially be better even if that means you have to have a hard conversation, even if that means Emery gets upset and transfers, whatever the consequences are, you have a bunch of other guys that are counting on you as a coaching staff to give them the best chance to win. And they may not win. Only one team wins, but you got to give them the best chance to win. All right. We're going to come back to this conversation about what we do next. Obviously, you <laughs> shared a little bit. Yeah, there, we but- had. To, I think that was the topic on everyone's right. mind. So we just dove right in. And now we'll more rationally analyze some of what the game is. Okay, was. let's get into what we talked about FSU's game plan would be and what they actually did. Yeah, so FAU, we thought, was going to load the box and force us to pass and that they would play sound defense because they had a lot of returners. They were very good at rushing the pass in the group of five. Uh, They struggled mightily to rush us against the pass, largely because the few times they did get free, Emery and Richardson were able to escape them. So it's a little miragey. They did get to us. They could not really get to us very often if they were just sending three or four, but... They were effective at getting in the backfield. They were not successful in bringing us down. We did see a total flip of the script, Alan. Oftentimes last year, we would see eight guys, sometimes nine guys defending the pass, which is pretty unbelievable. And the total opposite was true in this game. Uh, You rarely ever saw more than a plus one situation for the defense against the pass. They were always loading up for the run. They were sending sometimes one or two safeties. They were bringing everyone to stop the run. And they were not successful doing so. But I thought FAU's game plan on defense was more or less the right one. They played sound. They used the right tactics. They tried a variety of coverages. And I thought that they were a sound defense schematically. And we were still able to run all over them, which is exactly what we said we wanted to see out of a run game. So the most encouraging thing for me, FAU faithfully executed a good defensive game plan 
and our rushing attack obliterated them, despite the fact that it was a sound game plan. And that's what you want to see if you if you fancy your team as being a powerful running team. You have to do it against overmatched opponents. I thought that was the most encouraging thing of the game for sure. I agree. Uh, this was in a scenario where most of the yardage was on like goofy stuff. I mean, Malik Davis had averaged a lot of yards per carry. Uh, most of the guys did. I mean, obviously Richardson, his stats are <laughs> really high because he had a 73 yard run, a couple 20 yard runs. So, yeah, even when they did make a play, I think more often than not, we were able to overcome it, right? Damian Pierce bounces one outside. So they were effective, I think, strategically. And then often they, they did slow us down. They made us earn it. There was a lot of long drives. And so I think that actually is a feather in the cap of, of the offense for what they were trying to do, right? We talk about maybe what we would want them to do theoretically. But with Emory, right? We were trying to keep control of the ball, keep moving the chains. We ran in obvious running situations, mixed in the pass, you know, effectively enough, uh, and picked up enough third downs. So, I mean, if we're in the red zone, obviously throw a pick when Richardson has to come out of the game because someone took his helmet off, which should have been a huge penalty, obviously. And then we have a wrong call on fourth down, right? So, more points should have been on the board in the first half when the game was really in doubt. Uh, we screwed it up a little bit, but yeah, they were effective at what they were trying to do. Now let me ask you, let's say, let's say you don't have the option. Like Emory is the only guy on the team. What would you have liked to have seen them do anything differently than what they did? Yeah. I'm glad you said that. What I was going to say actually was I thought the game plan was, was really good on offense. I mean, again, if I have Emory and he's my only quarterback, he's very limited. I have to do what Dan tried to do. I thought the game plan was really solid for that. Uh, and that's a good way to look at it. You can ask yourself the questions we're going to ask, which is, well, did we have to do that? Could we have played someone else? Should we play someone else? But all in all, if your choice was to play Emory, the game plan you designed for Emory was good. It was effective. Had Emory been able to execute the passing game plan, which had guys open, which was good, we would have had 700 plus yards of offense. Right. They're open guys. So it was solid. So sometimes we've come on here, Alan, and we've said, hey, I don't like the game plan. The game plan wasn't good. There were some things that could have been changed. And that, that's pretty rare. We tend to really like, especially what Dan 2.0 has done. And, and perhaps it's too early, of course, to call this, Alan, but I think it's safe to say that that the Dan 1.0 seems seems not to be there anymore. Okay. Now with Emory, he has to throw some of those passes, but the wild vertical throws we were throwing with Richardson and even the play designs were almost immediately back to a very vertical attack-oriented offense. And I have a hard time believing those plays would even exist if it wasn't for the fact that somewhere deep down inside, there's some more vertical throwing. And then lastly, something we'll talk about as the season goes on, and I said this outside the stadium multiple times. The most encouraging thing to me is my biggest fear with Dan outside of recruiting was that if we're going to get stuck with a three yards in a cloud of dust offense, which I just don't think can win a national title anymore. But if you look at the quarterbacks not named Emory Jones on this roster, they're throwers. Those guys can sling the football. They can also move, but they are not guys who are brought in as like super project passers including Richardson, which we'll talk about him more in depth as of his actual passing ability. So there's a lot of like positive game plan, schematic stuff on offense and Dan Mullen in general 
that I want to heap some praise on. And I think Dan has really just continued to improve as an offensive coordinator. There's no doubt he's top five guy in the country. There's no doubt he understands football at an extremely high level. And the game plan he had was a very, very good one. It also revealed basically nothing to Nick Saban. It was just basic football plays, nothing special, nothing interesting, nothing that you might want to use or visualize. And it was effective, and it would have been extremely effective against a team that was not, as we chronicled, Alan, just some team that was going to roll over and you beat 80 to nothing. So check, check, check for all the things the coaches could control, given the personnel that he chose to put on the field. So we ran a lot more tempo than we did last year because we were less concerned about diagnosing what the defense is going to give us because that's not in the skill set of our quarterback. Uh, Did you like it? Do you think it made a difference? It did make a difference. We caught FAU several times not ready. Linebackers were out of position that led to big plays that may may not have been a big play. Uh, I thought Emory handled running the tempo very well. It's yeah. clearly something they had practiced for a long time. The offense was ready. No false starts in those situations. So really clean execution from the offense for the most part. Of course, again, Emory had his moments in there, a couple of delay games, etc. But all in all, for our first game, right? I think like we said, you want to see the coaches install something that makes sense, that the players are able to execute that that things go well with and that was all true uh that was all true we just lacked a quarterback that could deliver the ball but the coaching side of things outside of selection of quarterback obviously excellent i think across the board um a lot of good stuff happened including allen wide receiver blocking which was phenomenal yeah on that first touchdown whittemore had a guy we were a play where he just Cleaned his guy out. And Shorter had his guy six yards deep in the end zone. And we've chronicled Shorter. I chronicled him at length in this YouTube breakdown as well. He is just a workhorse out there. Everything he does is 100%. And he is blocking people all over the place. So I could not be more encouraged with the buy-in of these receivers. You come from the guys ahead of you are like driving a Ferrari. They're running routes all the time. They're catching passes. Yes, they blocked. We talked about that. But these guys now, their their, their receivers were glorified. It It was 10 guys blocking. That's what it was. It was glorified. Everybody's blocking. And they bought into it. They did it. I love seeing that aspect too. So that's all like plus, plus, plus in the, your team buys into what you're doing. They're, they're listening to what you're saying. So really happy with all that stuff. Uh, I want to talk about the O-line though, Alan. Yeah. This was the story of the game to me. Yeah. Let me talk about it. It's the story of the season. And yeah. and you you chronicled it. You discussed it. So give me your impressions on, on the O-line, what you saw, how you think they did. So much better at run blocking. It's it's almost hard to imagine because the guys aren't that different. They're in some different spots, right? And I knew that they would be, I didn't know. I hope they would be better at it just because we're going to focus on it, right? We didn't focus on it, but even it was comically bad at times last year and they were effective. And again, this is not, this is not Alabama. This is not Georgia. And they weren't moving guys like 18 yards down the field. But there were creases. The running backs were hitting them. They were getting, they're holding their guy when they needed to. They weren't all world, but they were definitely effective. And the pocket was clean for the most part. There, of course, there's some blitzes, and we talked about, you know, a little bit of pressure. But often when Emory was back there, there wasn't anybody around him. He wasn't being rushed into bad throws or bad timing on these crossers. The pocket was clean, it looked good. They looked like they knew what they were doing. I was very impressed. Extremely good stuff. The film breakdown was really encouraging, especially in the run blocking arena. I thought the left side of the line absolutely excelled. Yeah. Guraj and Ethan White were tearing people up. 
Uh, it's easy to see why they chose to put Kingsley at center. Thought he had yeah, a great, looks great really game good. at center. Uh, he allowed Pierce to score a touchdown with a really nice late block that he made. But Guraj at left at left tackle was something you had said early, early on. This guy should be our left tackle. He was premier at that position, not just as a pass blocker where he was an absolute wall, but as a run blocker where they they were using him in a variety of sets. He's cut blocking at one point for a run in the gap. He's he's doubling. He's, he's soloing. I mean, he's doing everything a lineman would have to do, and he did all of it really well. And then Ethan White was an absolute machine out there at guard. He's nasty. He's a huge guy. He has great feet. He's frequently getting the second level on his blocks. He's moving people clearly out of the lane. And you saw a strong preference for Florida to run left, which makes sense. I think it's very clear that Reese and DeLance, although they're they're okay in the run game, are nowhere near what you're getting on the left side of that, of that field. Um, of course, DeLance did still struggle in the pass game. You know, FAU brought three one time and they went right past him, which uh, Emory was able to scramble out for a first down. So there's there's still that. I don't think that's changed. Uh, but all in all, the O-line, A++. And, and we're not going to say, as you said, this does not mean we're going to do this against Alabama. But we have been unable to do this against anybody, anybody. at any time. And we thought we had six, maybe seven guys that could play at a high level. Uh, I think the left side of the line is solid. I would like to see some more exploration on the right side, especially with guys like Braun at right guard, and then really just swapping out some tackles. I think that problem is not solved when it comes to right. pass blocking. I didn't see anything from, from DeLance in run blocking. Let me to believe this guy's so plus in run blocking that someone else can't do what he's doing there. So that that's my one thing with the O-line. It sure. still looks like that spot we should try other people. The staff, I think, clearly is not going to try that because that's just what they're stuck on. Uh, but definite, definite great stuff in the run game from the O-line in this game. Yeah, Braun got a lot of snaps. Uh, basically, almost split time with Stuart Reese Big Stu, who looks much more agile, better shape. They had him pulling on some plays, which I don't think he would have been able to do that last year at his size. And so he looks better for sure. So we talked about last year, the difference, right? So last year, people were inviting us to run the ball. They were dropping so many people into coverage. If we could run the ball effectively into those fronts, it's like, well, what are you going to do? You'd almost have to still let us do that, except for in bad down distances. And this game, as you said, the reverse, they were not daring us to run the ball. And we're still able to be effective. That goes a long, long way and showing you how much better they were. Uh, I, Yeah, it's hard to overstate it. But again, I, I don't want to get too crazy because I don't want to come back here next week and be like, oh man, they did not look as good. Uh, it's one data point, but they checked the box this week. I was thankful that they did. Um, it seems like a unit that can hold up against the better teams again not that it would be a strength against the better teams but it's not going to immediately like sink you because we were talking about if the o-line is bad it's going to if they cannot run block it'll sink the entire season we're going to score 17 points a game and they were better than that and that was great that's correct and that's why we said that was so key as you just mentioned the o-line was so key because this team is limited passing especially right now limited is being kind and if you don't have an O-line that can competently allow you to run the ball, then even the lesser teams on your roster, I mean, on your schedule, become teams that could beat you. 
Uh, all right, so Florida ran the zone read really well. A lot of different running backs were featured. Malik got a ton of carries. Were you at all surprised by the distribution of carries in this game, running back-wise? In some sense, yes and no. Like, obviously, Davis was running the ball really well. Yeah, I feel like better vision than I had seen from him in a couple of years, or maybe just the ability to stop, start, and actually hit the hole, right? Seemed really competent running the ball. I, In a vacuum, I wouldn't mind him getting those carries. He did a good job with them. Every time Pierce gets a carry, though, I want more from him. I like seeing Bowman get a couple of outside runs. Naquan Wright is it's kind of the mix of all the skills. He's going to be fine in everything but not stand out. It's, it's weird that Davis got so many and Pierce got so few. I don't know if that is something maybe they're trying to limit Pierce. Maybe it wasn't 100% healthy. There could be some reasons that we're not discussing. But I, I was surprised by the distribution. What about you? Yeah, I am too. We continue to bang the drum for Pierce. I mean, he he is by far the best tackle breaker. His tackle breaking ratio is so high. It's among the best in the country. He almost never goes down from the first guy. He makes people miss. He's explosive. He's strong. I feel like on a lot of other teams, he'd be a workhorse back. And on this team, he gets, you know, seven, eight carries. Yeah, and I I basically, I think what I would want is them about even, right? I don't, I'm not saying I want to see Davis less because he didn't do a good job. I just want to see Pierce more. I think Pierce offers you more. And that's where the question is. The order of finish should be who offers you the most. I thought that uh, the Bowman, you know, he's he's raw. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't have a good field yet. For Smaller than I thought he'd be too. Smaller than I thought. He's quick. But he, he ran past two what could have been big plays if yeah. he had just cut up the field. A better running back would have seen that. And that's typical. Most freshman running back do not have vision yet at this level. They're used to just being so much more athletic. They want to turn the corner. And for him, it's very comfortable or, or normal. I think he just wanted the edge. So good stuff for him to learn. Lingard got a carry or two, which was nice for him. A lot of talent there, but it does seem like Pierce is the best pure kind of yard after catch guy. And he's he's effective as a, at least on bubbles and whatnot. They have him running yeah. routes out there. He so it good. seems like. He could get some more. Malik's, like you said, did well. But it seems like Pierce really is probably the best guy. It was nice to see Pierce get the goal line carry. Yeah. I thought he did a nice job with that. Well, and this well. could be a, a big nothing burger. We could get to the game four and they're sure. roughly equal. Maybe they just liked Malik in this game against this front and they he was doing well, so he kept giving the ball. I mean, at the end of the year, you want to even out those carries because you don't want to put... Malik is not a guy you would want to give the bulk of the carries to physically. Correct. So, anyway... um. But nice work from the running backs in general. And then we got some questions about the receivers. I really want to get into this. I liked what they did for the most part. Um, They didn't catch a lot of balls, obviously. It was spread around to a ton of people. Um, How do you think the receivers did in general? What was your impression of them? It's really hard to grade them. So obviously looking at the all 22, you can see all the routes were running. As we said, most routes were super basic. They were not running a full route tree. They were not running complicated routes. They were not asked to get open. They did not face a lot of man. So if you're, I don't care who you are. If your job is to run a decoy go route and you run a decoy go route, ball's not going to you. So it's really diff, you know, difficult to evaluate them. A lot of the routes they're running were just simple sit routes on the edge. Shorter must have run a million yeah. routes between zero and eight yards, and he probably could have gotten 10 catches, but Emory just isn't looking. So I think a lot of people came away saying, man, our receivers are not good. Like, we, they're not open. They're not good, uh, which I think is is false. It's just really, we're not going to know if our receivers are good until we have a trigger man who can throw them the ball on time. Trent Whittemore, who's solid, 
if you're not a veteran football watching fan, you could look at it and think, wow, he dropped like two passes. And, Three, maybe. But the reality is these balls are being thrown late behind him. You don't know where the ball is. So as a receiver, you want to come out of your break, stay on your line, and have a ball somewhere near you while you're moving. You can even see that Florida's receivers are so used to Emory Jones throwing to random places that they sort of run their route and start to kind of like get ready like a shortstop would, which is a horrific sign that that's consistently what's going on. Nothing is right. In the and he's put game. enough on film that he's fantastic. He, he has good hands. Like, he has I, good hands. I have yeah. zero concern. If you look at that, that's what's going on. It's just not right. And so I think we have to continue to place a pass on them until we can see a more realistic look. For now, what they're being asked to do, they're doing faithfully. I think we've said this enough. Billy Gonzalez has done a great job with these guys. Each and every year, they're ready to play. They block with heart and enthusiasm. They're running the right routes. They're not jumping off sides. They're not getting false starts penalties. They're not doing anything stupid. Uh, I don't know what else they can do in that game. So I think it's just... The jury's still out on how good this unit can be. It's impossible to know. It just isn't something you can evaluate until you get a quarterback who's throwing them the football. And for any of you, again, who are football fans, especially in the NFL, a lot of NFL receivers who are amazing look like trash if they don't have a guy who can throw them the football. So you you have to have that. We don't know yet. So let's wait and see. And, and we got the question too, Alan, like how would they look with Trask? Yeah, Brad Wilson I don't, said I don't know. Good question. I don't know because we're not running even remote routes that make any sense that challenge a defense. They're so simple. So time will tell, especially if Richardson gets in. I think you're going to see a, a very different offense as the season goes on. And we'll find out just how good these guys are. For as long as Emery's in, I don't think you're going to see much more than this. I, I don't. I, I do not and have not every single year subscribed to the notion that teams come out and run everything so vanilla, saving everything for some future opponent. It's not the way that it works. They try to have maybe eight to ten fresh plays. That offense was not vanilla because it was game one. That offense is how Emory has to run it. It's just how it's got to be. Yeah, um, you don't run your super exotic stuff. Of course but, not. But uh, most of your offense, 80, 85 percent, it's pretty much the same. And that game plan, I think, is revealed that this is just how it has to be. So we're not going to know. We're going to have to withhold and find out what my, these guys can do. This is an assumption. I think we would be pleasantly surprised by the receivers. Let's say you just bring back Kyle Trask and put him in the offense, right? Um, I think Whittemore would be making catches. I think Henderson. Jamarcus Weston is a new guy, right? Three-star guy that has a lot of what you would look for, speed, size, can move. I think he'd be fine. I think, you know, not not what you had last year, but I think you wouldn't be like, oh, man, our receivers are the thing that's limiting us. I don't, I don't think that would be the takeaway. Maybe they reduce the cap of the offense because they're not going to all play in the NFL, but I don't think you would have come away from the game being like, we're really inept at receiver. Um, let me come back to the zone read here for a second. So zone read, if you're unfamiliar with that term, that we do this all the time, right? The quarterback puts the ball in front of the receiver, or excuse me, in front of the running back who's next to him. He's going to kind of veer in front of him. Is he going to give him the ball or not? Often, I mean, sometimes in modern game, he might throw it. But traditionally, if you're thinking Gus Malzahn style, he's reading a guy. What does that mean? He's reading him. He's looking at a certain player, a defensive end, defensive tackle. What does that guy do? Does he run at the running back? I'm going to keep it. Does he run at me? I guess I'll give it to him. That's a way oversimplification. But let me just ask you, why was it so effective 
I mean, Anthony Richardson was not running like trick plays. He was running a couple zone reads. They know he can run. Why was it so like shatteringly effective when he ran it? Well, two reasons. In the beginning, it was like they didn't know he could run. (laughs) And maybe that's a sign of a Willie Taggart team. I don't know. Maybe he takes his first snap in the fourth quarter after the third, which you could still, you saw he could still run. And the defensive end, when Emery was in, would almost always try to at least hold. And sometimes Emery would just keep it and run around him. But he would try to hold a little bit. And as soon as as soon as Richardson was in, it's like they treated it as though the backup quarterback that's in the can't run came in. And they just ran right for Lingard. And then, okay, easy money. But clearly, I'm reading you're coming inside. I'll just keep the ball and run outside. And then secondly, even as the game wore on in the fourth and they recognized he's a problem, they started to try to bring edge pressure and blitzes. He's just fast. And if I could have gotten, like, I think, inside the brain of some of these FAU defenders, it would have been one of those moments as an athlete when someone blows by you and you're really like, I don't know if I've seen that kind of speed before from a quarterback. Like, mm-hmm. And you could see it, I think, especially their safety number four, I think by the end of the game, didn't have like, didn't under, just didn't really know what to do. Couldn't take a right angle, couldn't figure out how to rush this guy. He's too fast. And if you played your whole life and you haven't faced somebody as a quarterback who's got that kind of speed... It's like what Tim Tebow did to people when he's running you over. Like you really, as a defender, it makes you look bad because you're not used to tackling quarterbacks like that. So I think it's a combination of A, Dan Mullen's extremely good at teaching both quarterbacks how to run that zone read, and they're excellent at it. B, as we've talked about, Dan Mullen's running play designs are amazingly good. They're tricky. There's a lot of good pull blocking going on. It's not easy to get a read on what to do. If you make a mistake, you're dead. And then three, if you make that mistake, Richardson makes you pay Significant. That was he's just say. so fast. I mean, there is you cannot make a mistake, or he's going to get twenty yards on you. I mean, it's it's incredible risk reward with him in there. Yeah, it was funny because it looked. I wanted to hear have you say that because it looked like they didn't know what to do at all, which is kind of silly. Yeah, it's like I guess they thought we were just going to sit on the ball, and he pulls it and just turns the corner. There's nobody there. And then instead of like, you know, if you imagine Kyle Trask, he keeps it. He's going to get five yards down the field and they're going to close on him. Richardson is gone. And so that was really fun. Okay. Um, just wanted to comment on that because those, those were not like he runs 73 yards just on a simple zone read because they're just not ready for him. So yeah. that was fun. And let's save. We're going to we're going to yeah. go through the defense and then we'll discuss as we talked about sort of the future as we get. And so if you're wondering, what do we do now? Would you bench Richardson? Would you play Emery? How do we do this? We're going to get into that when we talk about uh, the USF setup. Like, what do we do going forward? For now, we'll okay. still cover this game post-mortem here. So on defense, Allen, we give up 297 yards passing, most of that in the second half, uh, 92 yards rushing, we were two for two. They were two for two in the red zone, rather. They were five for 12 on third down. They had two fumbles. A lot of the passing did come against a wide variety of, of lightly used players, especially on the defensive line. Uh, but it still happened. Still didn't look great. The early passing, they were successful as well. Uh, we did say FAU's game plan would be to run the ball. They largely tried hard to do that. Short passes, run the ball. Really, really, if, if you didn't know anything about Nikosi, which we talked about, FAU's quarterback, He's very similar to Emery. Talented guy, very athletic, strong arm, not accurate. Kind of the same thing. And their game plan for him was smart and solid. And, and it worked. It worked. Uh, I think, if anything, Alan, they probably felt like their offense had a much better day 
than they would have imagined. I think yeah. that's the takeaway for me is they got back on the bus and thought, hey, you know what? That's encouraging for our offense, which was almost dead last in college football last year and came out and was pretty darn competent in this game. Yeah, it's funny because if you look at the large stats, right? You said two for two in the red zone. They didn't get into the red zone until late fourth quarter when we're playing third and four stringers. You don't really care ultimately if they punch it in, right? The defense wants to play well, right? But yeah, it's you know two turnovers. They didn't get in the red zone. They pitch a shutout until late in the game. I think you would take that obviously anytime. But the we'll get to each unit um, that the D line was excellent. But did you like what was happening in the secondary? How not just the like the coverage, but the like how the guys covered individually, but what we were trying to do in the back end. No, I, I didn't like it. And we asked the question, would Grantham change anything? And through one game, the answer is no. This is the base Grantham defense. Nothing is different. Same stuff. Very soft. Uh, corners playing off. Third down and five and six against a guy who can't throw. Giving him the hitch. Uh, obvious hitch. And you'll see it on the YouTube breakdown as well. Linebackers having to cover slot receivers from interior spots. You can't get there. They know you can't get there. So just take the hitch. Just a lot of things that made sense 15 to 18 years ago in football and just don't make sense now. And even FAU is able to line up and say, okay, great, we'll put you in this package. And if you're going to run that kind of static zone, we'll make you pay. I thought Elam is still completely lost in zone defense. It makes no sense. They rarely threw at him. They didn't even try to throw at him when he was playing press man. And in zone, he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, frequently, Florida had two or three guys covering nobody or one guy. You're in a zone, Alan. Guy runs into your zone. There's two of you there. Florida's defense frequently doesn't cover the guy. doesn't make any sense. Like, if there's one guy on your side of the field and you're the underneath guy in his zone, cover the guy. That's your job. You just cover him and there's no more play. But it's like they'll just cover grass as if they have three guys running around and they have to split the difference. So it was not encouraging to see the style with which we played. What was encouraging was how absolutely great our defensive line is. Yes. Those guys are were as advertised. I mean, they were living in the backfield. And despite that, FAU was still able to convert a lot of third downs. Now, like you mentioned, the scores did not come till later. The big passing plays didn't come till later. I'm not saying we need to play man every single play. But a guy like Perry does not read the field. So when he's converting third down and four and five and six on you, he's just taking the ball and throwing it to his first read, which is what we talk about with Grantham a lot. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this year going into it. You can listen last year if you want to hear things. The high-level takeaway is I didn't see anything that indicated to me that our scheme or strategy was going to be any different, which makes sense. Grantham himself has told us, I'm not changing anything. Why do you think I got to this level? Because I know what I'm doing. Fine, that's fair. So that's what we're getting. I did think I did think we had a lot more linebackers. I thought, therefore, we rotated all of them like so much that based on who was in the game, you were getting some different results because they have different skill sets. I thought that was true for sure. But all in all, good question. I think most Gator fans probably saw what I saw. A lot of the same features of of how Florida's played defense under Grantham was still there. And it's just, uh, in one word, it's just a bit of a soft defense. That's kind of the style that he plays. It's a bit safe. It's a bit soft. So weirdly, I wouldn't say aggressive, but stout up front. right? Your front seven against the pass, against the run should be like very solid. And if you have the right guys, they're going to get to the 
passer and they're going to cause some havoc. There's going to be some negative plays the way we're aggressive, but it's this weird pairing of aggressive up front and very conservative in the back end. So if you can get the ball off, it's to a guy who's probably open and yeah, they're not beating you downfield for a go route. Although they could have a couple times, right? If you don't have the right guy in coverage or he doesn't realize that he's supposed to bail when he is. So it's just kind of unsatisfying, right? And, you know, FAU is never going to threaten us in the way I don't think. So you can play kind of whatever you wanted to, right? Eventually, I think you would stop them because you're just so, they're so overmatched offensive line, defensive line. But that's not a recipe for success overall. And so I like the way a lot of the guys played. I, you know, again, we talked, talked about, I talked about the top. We got lined up. Didn't seem like we were having as many, you know, communication errors. Like you think back to Ole Miss last year where guys are running right down the middle of the field and the safeties are looking at one another like, I don't know what happened, right? So better than that, certainly. But not like, okay, we inverted what we wanted to do. We're not taking advantage of the speed and length and skill of our corners, things like that. Yeah, I think so. I think also the shutout was very miragey early on. Helms, number 24, who's the guy who won the starting job, who I don't think is going to be long for that job based upon the film he put out there in week one, got torched three times in the first seven FAU plays. And miraculously, none of them completed. He burned. They were targeting him relentlessly, and he had no answer for it. So question marks there. Good news was Marshall came in, the five-star, got a rather stupid penalty in coverage yeah, but a ball that wasn't when he was in ball. he was solid nobody was getting over top of him helms was getting burnt deep all the time which means it's on film which means opposing coaches know if 24 is in the game they're going to challenge him deep but i think you said it best and maybe we leave it right here it's a really bizarre mixture of phenomenal aggression up front with unbelievably vanilla static zoned stupidity in the backside that's not allowing your athletes to be athletes. And here's here's the thing for you, Alan. FAU, they're a, a INT machine on passing. They're terrible at passing. One of the worst teams at passing in Cibola last year. Again, they have Nikosi. He's a better quarterback. He was terrible at Miami at passing. Florida wasn't even anywhere close to getting an interception in this game. No. Not even close. And that tells you all you need to know about the scheme that we are utilizing. On the other side, look at FAU. They could have picked off another one. They could have picked off three, four, and we're not even close. And that tells you, again, a lot about how Ted Grant then runs defense on the backside and why good quarterbacks shred his stuff. We did the same stuff we've always done, including, last but not least, Allen, a third and 17. We dropped eight like we've done before. Half the field is covering no one because they flood aside, and they have a wide-open guy on a little in-breaking route, and they just missed him. He threw it a little low, but I mean, it would have been a conversion. So a lot of the hallmarks were there. That's frustrating. It's going to be frustrating, but I love it. I love what you said. It's a bizarre mix of aggression up front, really good pass rush with really vanilla, soft backside stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Let's talk about the D-line, though, because I do want to spend some time. They were extremely impressive, and this is you know a new unit. You had Valentino, Newkirk in there at tackle, and let me, let's just talk about Zachary Carter for a minute. A man amongst boys out there getting pressure from the inside, from the outside. He 
did level up this year. He was great last year, and he's even better this year. That line looks formidable. When we're rushing guys, we'll talk about the front seven, I guess. As Diabate, when he's rushing the passer, he's really good at that. He They put him on the field as a freshman because he could just get after the quarterback. He was bull rushing guys. I mean, I don't know if it's <laughs> – he's not big enough to, like, play the buck full-time probably, but when we blitz him, it's really hard to keep him away from the quarterback. Valentino, I was really impressed by. Newkirk, you know, ups and downs. He's a smaller guy for a defensive tackle, but he gets some penetration. I think he's going to be better as he gets used to it. But Valentino, I thought, was great. And, yeah, very impressed. Bogle looked good. A lot of guys to comment on. Yeah, D-line's great. And and this is this is really a testament to what we've seen now. You know, we're in year three of the David Turner regime as defensive line coach. And this is what happens, in my opinion, Alan, when you have a coach who's killing it. You get good players that want to play for you, and it builds upon itself. Look at this unit. They are better every single year. Every single year. And they play sound football. We chronicled last year in the beginning of the year. We had issues with edge control. Cox had some issues with edge control. He did it one time early on. He did it one time early on in this game. But that stuff doesn't keep showing up. And this unit came out. And yes, you're playing FAU. Fine. I don't care. Sound gap responsibility. They weren't going all over the place, running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They were sound. They were solid. They were smart. And I thought number 55, Valentino, the Penn State transfer, was an absolute beast out there. He is fantastic. Super quick. Gets off the ball really, really well. He was disrupting the backfield. He was a phenomenal player. I think he's going to be a great player for us. Uh, I love seeing him. You mentioned Carter. Obviously, Bogle with the sack. There's a lot of guys. I mean, there are a lot of guys that we can bring at you. And we were doing all of that without really having to bring pressure. Right. Uh, and and again, should that happen? Yes. But it doesn't happen automatically. And can't say enough about the D-line. We were stoked about them. We said they were our best unit on the team. They were. They met the billing. They were fantastic. I can't believe I'm about to say this, Alan. But our safeties were solid. Okay. Our safeties were solid. This is the first time I've been able to say that in a Dan Mullen era, and I think kudos goes to Wesley McGriff for for putting that together as our safeties coach. They were consistent. They were in the right position. Never blew a coverage. Dean was fantastic at strong safety, making tackles, covering his guys well. I thought Torrance handled the back end really, really well. Now, they weren't challenging us in that regard, um, but they were there. Like Any of the passing plays that were occurring were not because of our safeties. Nobody got behind them. There was nothing like that going on. And I thought number 32, Mordecai McDaniel, is a nice player. Very cerebral on film. Uh, he's he's smart. He moves well. He coordinates other guys. You can see him when he's in there for his snaps. He knows what's happening. Has a really good feel for where to go. I love that in his safety. I'm curious to see more from him. But all in all, this is huge progress from a unit that has generally crushed us. So also, that made an impression on me. That was really nice, I thought, by them. Yeah, and as you said, they're not two on one of these safeties. They're not putting them in real backbreaking positions, but they were doing simple things poorly. There's a play where Dean closes on the sideline. I believe we're in the right coverage. It goes over the top of Elam and he comes in and breaks up the pass. We didn't see that at all. I haven't seen a safety break up a pass in like three years. So just like that, I mean, something, it wasn't routine, it was a nice play, but. It was kind of astonishing that he did it. Um, you're right. I liked our safeties. I like McDaniel, who came in early because Trey Dean got dinged up on the kickoff. So you saw him on the field immediately. 
And he played well for a guy who's not played at all. So he wasn't scared. He wasn't overwhelmed. Torrance, again, is, you know, neither of those guys are all that big, right? So they're going to have to play smart and fast, and they did that. Uh, anybody else on the defense stand out to you? Yeah, I thought number 27, Jadarius Perkins. Right, who's was, a total question mark. We had no idea about him. He's excellent. In fact, I'm going to say right now that he's my he's my starting star. He's my starting nickel on this team. I'm putting okay. him at star, right from what I saw. That's some of the best coverage. And this is FAU. He could get toasted later. But from what I've seen, I saw Trevez again. I'm not high on Trevez. He keeps putting stuff on a film that leads me to believe he, sh- he shouldn't be playing. He, Who, and Trevez did actually get a decent amount of snaps at he got, safety. He did, which fine, let's try that out because he should not be playing at the star position. He's, he's not a good tackler, especially not in open space, not horizontally, and he just does not cover well. But Perkins is a dog. He's all over the field. I mean, he is. that is what your nickel or your star or your slot, whatever we want to call that cornerback on this team, that's what that guy looks like. He's a ball of energy. He hustles. He breaks up passes. He was all over the field. He was flashing for me. Keep an eye on him. I'm happy they gave him playing time. Yeah, It shows they're on that. But that's a guy who I'm coming into USF based upon what he put on film, and he is my starting star. I mean, I think he was that good on there. I was really excited about taking a look at him. Uh, And, you know, one thing we're not mentioning, Alan, is there's no linebackers that made an impression on me. Hopper was fine. He was fine. He did fine. He didn't really have a chance to do much. Yeah, I mean, he blew up a play in the hole. Made a real nice big tackle in the hole. Uh, I think, if anything, what I continue to see is I, I just, I don't, I don't see it from Ventrell Miller. You would think, as much as we rotated through it, that if you get a Ventrell Miller and someone else that you'd really notice when he wasn't on the field, you don't. I still think Miller's just kind of a guy. I think Hopper's our best guy. I'd like to see Hopper get more and more snaps, and I'd like to see him get those snaps with a rotation of some of those other guys. We don't have an obvious, I think, second best linebacker. We have like a different tool toolkit. Do you want the Abate for certain situations? Uh, Bernie's gotten even bigger. He plays a lot. You know, he's he's hit or miss on some plays. But you know, we can go on down the line on these linebackers. Yeah, but it, there's a lot. They played a lot of them, which is great for film purposes. Uh, but it, this an FAU is a tricky opponent. But largely, I think we have to see more from the linebackers to get a feel for who we think might should be two, three, or four best. But one thing I will say: we mentioned Florida would play a lot more sets when they were not just two linebackers and that that was true we were rotating through some three linebacker sets at times there was more than just two of them on the field but how do you feel about the heavy rotation we played I mean there was a significant snap rotation at yeah linebacker. I like it a lot I think it's something the staff has always done pretty well at if they have the guys to put them on the field I think it only benefits you it keeps guys fresh gives them more experience to the guy who's going to play next year it's not like he hasn't touched the field at all I like that they're able to trust a lot of guys. It's really interesting with Jeremiah Moon. He started the game at basically the money linebacker position on the field with Miller. So you had Carter, Cox, and Moon all in the field. (laughs) And I want to get hopeful about things like that, like in a different defense where you're playing very aggressive. Having a guy who could line up at essentially four different positions and you don't know what he's actually playing so therefore you don't know what he's going to do at an extra level of that, right? You can always blitz or something like that, but is he going to cover? Is he going to play just a regular linebacker? Is he going to move over to the end and come at you? He's capable of all those things. And that's a really interesting guy to have, but I don't, if we're going to be so soft on the back end, I, I don't know that it really matters, but I like, 
how you put it, there's a lot of guys who can do a lot of different things. Now that makes you predictable. Like if you have Diabate out there, is he just going to rush? Moon is a guy that allows you to mask whatever you're doing. I don't know if we'll take advantage of it. Tackling was pretty good for a first game. It wasn't, it took some bad angles, things like that, but it wasn't like FAU was shedding our tackles right and left. So I think you talked about this. It, it shouldn't be this big thing like, oh, no one can tackle, right? They did a good job with that. Yeah, yeah. that was solid. I, I still think Florida, and this mentions in the back end tackling-wise, if you turned on some other games, if you watched Florida State and Notre Dame last night, if you watched a lot of other teams, watch Penn State play. Mm, oh, yeah, they were excellent. They're tackling downhill a lot. You watch Florida play, we're just like tackling neutrally, question mark. Hopper tackles downhill. But a lot of these dudes are kind of just like being tackled. I don't know. It's bizarre. We're not well, we're playing. Not saying, think about last downhill, year. The beginning but, of the year. No, no, I agree with you. Yeah. All that to say for a Grantham, Florida defense, we were tackling people to the ground with a much higher clip. And in fact, I think across the country, Allen, tackling was ginormously improved. There's no doubt that maybe the number one casualty of COVID in the football world was tackling. It was way better. Teams' defenses were way better. You saw much lower scores across the country this year compared to last year. And I think a lot of that was due just simply to not allowing three-yard plays to become 20-yard plays. But the tackling did check the box from the standpoint of, I don't want to hear that our tackling is terrible because it's week one. It was more or less what you expected from a week one. It wasn't amazing. It wasn't a bunch of guys crushing other guys. But for the large part, they weren't getting a ton of yards after a catch. Okay. Let's talk about special teams. You know, question marks about who's going to do what. Jace Chrisman is kicking off. Chris Howard is taking the field goals. Thoughts on any of those guys? I think my only thought is that I don't think that we're purposely kicking a short kick. I was going to ask about that. I mean, maybe you would. You're trying to entice them to not fair catch it and that you could. Sure. That's never been a Dan Mullen thing. So that seems unusual. He would just randomly decide they're going to do that. I can't tell. So keep an eye on that. Not a bad strategy if you. That's it, what you it, it could be do. a great strategy if you want to do that. It doesn't seem like that's a strategy. <laughs> it's it not seems a strategy to me like Jace does not have the leg to consistently put the ball out of the end zone. That's what it seems like, and Those, I doubt Howard does either. I don't think either of them do, and that's a that's significant in in the world of college football where most most elite teams have a guy who just hammers it basically out of the end zone, so you can never get a return. This is this is different. So what that means is Florida special teams will get reps. Because guys are going to take returns out on them, which is what we saw happen. That can be good or bad, uh, depending on your viewpoint. But just to note, that looks like that might continue. So keep an eye on that. Outside of that, nothing to note. I think in the kicking game, there wasn't really anything beyond that. A couple of punts, they were fine. They were good. No field goal attempts. No field goal attempts, so nothing there. Elam, on the return, he was on one punt return. Yeah. We did get some information that he did play punt returner in high school, which is not surprising as an elite athlete. But then he was pretty promptly yanked for Henderson, which I'm guessing is like get him at one game rep. And I'm guessing Elam probably is still maybe the number one guy or that was just for fun. But Henderson, Allen. He actually looked really good. Had a really nice return. He fielded one that he probably should have let go in the end zone, but there was a great punt that sent him back. That's a tough one. Um, He looked fast. He looked sudden. He looked elusive. I really liked him in that role. So... If they're going to keep him doing that and they're going to be aggressive with it, I think that's a great use of him. You know, he's a backup wide receiver. That's that's a good use of capital and resources in terms of scarcity and things like that. Elam, we didn't like. I talked. To, I went off about that. 
And then, you know, kick returns or whatever. Jamarcus Weston was back there. I think that's that's a guy who seems reasonable back there. If you're not going to use Copeland or somebody like that or uh, of that profile, Weston is a guy I think would be fine. We'd, we didn't really do anything, obviously. Yeah, look, Xavier Henderson is a is a top 75 guy, top recruit, elite athlete. You better believe he's out there on offense, not touching the ball at receiver. He's going to take punts back. <laughs> he's going to be motivated to take punts back. But I loved it. We talked about this being something that could be important. And maybe Elam wasn't the safe strategy after all. I don't like the strategy because, again, why risk him? But I love that Henderson's back there taking punts back. That kind of helps dispel maybe the fear we had, which is we're going to be a fair catch machine. I think there's room uh, as a good team to take punts back, and I liked Henderson. So that was probably the biggest exciting note, I think, on special teams. Let's do a little coaching corner. Not a lot going on. As always, reminder, GNFP fans, listeners, supporters, friends, uh, send us your coaching corners from across the country. Alan and I, of course, watch a lot of games, but oftentimes you send us some of the best ones. So just you know, send us to them on social media, email, whatever. We will cover them. We only have one from our game this past weekend. I'm sure there were many more that occurred. We're all getting our sea legs back. So in the first half, FAU has a third down at about midfield. They complete a pass. They have one timeout left, and the clock is running. 17, 16, 15, and Florida calls a timeout. Do you like the use of a timeout here from Florida? They hadn't called one on the drive before. They didn't call one on second down. The clock was running. They called one here with 15 seconds left. It allowed us to get to a Hail Mary attempt, right? Well, they went for it. FAU went for it on fourth down. So your choices are let the clock run down. Either FAU uses their timeout, which is likely, and they would have probably thrown a Hail Mary with four seconds left so they get the last play. Or you use a timeout, which is what we did, and but then you risk giving up a first down, right. field goal range, a better Hail Mary throw. Uh, I'm kind of tipping my hand here with what I think. But it was, it was curious. Typically, you're not going to call a timeout right. when there's a fourth down for them, and really you're not going to get the ball back with a whole lot of time left. I didn't. I didn't hate it, but I didn't. I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, curious. I, I think yeah. it was curious. I'm not going to put the nail on the call, but pretty unusual in that situation. There's not as much to gain as there is to lose. Aggressive, certainly, and I don't mind aggression, but yeah, but not aggressive earlier when it was second down. And I think the right, I think the yeah. mathematical call there is you just you're letting you're letting that clock go down. You make them use their last timeout because then if they complete a pass in the middle of the field that's true they have I, I do to think making rush them burn one more the field goal yeah it was curious i'm i'm going to put that one in the not so great but also not like okay let's go crazy but in a big game that might matter more either way unusual here's the big one though here's the big one Alan. dan made some post game comments right well, he always this. makes post game comments cuz they interview he did. Him, but he did but this one occurred immediately on the field sec network reporter asked him a question basically says hey any thoughts about whether you're going to have? Do you have a timeline for a timeline? Yeah, for making right? a decision about decision on who's your starter. And he, he's like, "What? What starter? What? Huh? Huh? But a starter's Emery." And he's like, "You know, has like, this you know, look kind of just like look bobbles his, his head face. around a little bit and like, what are you asking me?'" And they're like, "What is Emery? What are your thoughts on that?" It was cagey, but not in a good way. Like he was intentionally being obtuse about it. Like that's a weird question. It would almost be like. You know, if someone comes up to the Packers and is like, hey, are you going to start Aaron Rodgers next week? And they'd be like, I mean, yeah. You know, that would be your response, right? Like, uh, do you know something I don't know? 
Like, why are you asking me this question? When obviously the thing we talked about it for 10 minutes at the top is that your backup quarterback came in there and set the stadium on fire. So yeah, we're going to ask you about it. So I don't know. I think you can answer the question without like giving anything away. If you want to, if you want to just say, Hey, you know, we look at everything, you know, Emory's our starting quarterback, but you know, I thought Anthony played great or something like that where you diffuse it without, I think it just rubbed people the wrong way as Dan, as Dan tends to do. He tends to read the room incorrectly is to act like that. We're crazy for asking you that is a weird, weird look, especially because you're crazy. If you're surprised someone's asking you, that. right. Were you not in the same stadium? Of course he's not. He's aware of it. You better believe that he knows the game ends and he's thinking, oh man, here we go. This is this is quarterback controversy. They're gonna start asking me questions. But isn't that a good thing? Like, do you unless yes. you unless your primary motivation is to protect your number one guy? Right. Now there's certain situations where it's like, okay, we have a potential quarterback controversy. I think this guy's wetter, way better. I don't want to invite controversy by doing things that will invite it. But if you're gonna play Anthony, he's gonna do that. Of course, people are gonna ask you about it. Obviously, but also here's some simple lines that you could use. Now, Dan Mullen can't use these lines because he's consistently saying so-and-so is my starter. Franks is my starter. Why would you ask me any different? You know, now it's, now it's obviously he's my starter, but you could just answer the question like this every week, forever. For the rest, here you go, Dan. There's a free one from me. You can do this forever. You just simply say, hey, look, at Florida, the, the best guy's going to play. And each week we'll take a look at who that is and decide who the best guy is because our, my job is to do what's best for the team to win football games. Done. You can say that forever. Because that's just a media answer. It's a non-nothing burger. But behind closed doors, you can say whatever you want to your team. Emery's our guy, or it's a split situation, or it's competitive, or you talk to Emery and Anthony Richardson you know, independently or together or whatever. But to me, and we hoped maybe that Dan Mullen was going to get some PR coaching or some consulting or how to endear yourself to fans. You just make yourself look so foolish when you're like, you couldn't believe that they would ask you a question about that. Like, how could you ask me that? Of course, Emery's a star. It's like, oh, well, I'm sorry. He just had one of the worst passing games you could imagine against an overmatched opponent. Seems like a reasonable question. So he does this stuff. It's nothing new for Dan. I think for me, I don't like the comments at all. If you want to protect your number one quarterback, there's other ways to do it. But most importantly, I don't think the Steve Spurrier school of burning down your own team to the media was the right one either. And I don't think that Dan Mullen, like, I'm going to act like nothing is happening to the media ever is the right one either. The right one's in the middle of those two. Be honest, protect your team so that you're not selling guys out to the media, right? That's like in going and talking trash about your friends to someone else before you tell your friends. But there's ways to handle those questions, man. You know, hey, Richardson played really good. That's why we recruit great guys at Florida. You know, we love that we have two guys that can really play the position. End of, end of story. Lean into the fact that this guy just lit the world on fire. But I think, and for me, Alan, here's what it is. At times in life, as a leader, you can unintentionally sort of minimize somebody else's accomplishments by defending a guy you like or know. You actually minimize what Richardson just did. It's sort of like nothing to see here. No big deal. Emery's our guy no matter what. There's a way to handle both of those things. And I think that's what Dan tends to do. Like, it almost felt like he was against Trask for a while. Of course, he couldn't have been. But it felt like it because he was so bullheadedly defending Franks, who wasn't playing well. So we'll see what happens. I just think that this is what Dan does. I don't know why. I don't know Dan personally. I can't ask him why. I can't have a long conversation about it. It just befuddles me. Again, I'm not in the camp, Alan, where you should go on national television and say right away, 
Richardson's our guy immediately. We're going to look at him. We're going to do things. That doesn't make any sense. That's not the right thing to do either, right? But something better than this should be what's happening. It does not inspire faith in your leader when these kind of quotes come out. And this is a little bit understandable because you're, I don't know, he, he had to know that he was going to ask for it. It wasn't like a pre-planned statement or something, but I think this is where Dan gets in trouble because when he is not able to be thoughtful about it. All right, let's do some final thoughts. You want to ask this question first? I do indeed. And uh, so now we always ask this question kind of at the opener, in the middle of the season, end of the season. Are you more positive, negative, or are there no changes in your feelings about this year's Florida Gators team moving forward? Yeah, so after this first data point, how do we feel about it? I don't know. I'm going to say positive, though, because of this radical wild card of Anthony Richardson. He's the type of player that can totally change what you do. Now, if we're going to play Emory, I think it goes down a little bit negative because there's at least some hope that Emory would be better. You talk about it all the time. A guy's doing something in practice, whatever. You don't care what he does in practice. Let me let me put it out there. Is he a gamer? Is he hitting the passes he needs to be? It's not the prettiest, but it's getting the job done. Well, you put Richardson on the field and you see it too, right? And Emory, this is the thing that they said this about 10 times during the broadcast, and I rewatched it this morning because I was at the game and I wanted to see it, that he might not make every throw that Kyle Trask would make, but that he would make some throws that Kyle Trask couldn't make. They said that probably four times, right? That maybe some wild plays, right? That I guess if theoretically Emory has a stronger arm, that he can put the ball down the field with some velocity that maybe Trask couldn't. But he made zero wild throws. Not even one. He made some okay throws. Like his throw to Copeland on third and medium to long, good throw. So there's nothing wow from him in the passing game that you would take that trade off, right? He maybe, this is like some Cam Newton-esque stuff, right? He makes some plays where you're like, okay, that you short hop that guy and then you threw it 100 yards down the field. I'll take you missing the five yard out because you threw it 100 yards down the field. We're not getting that from Emory. We'll talk about Anthony Richardson here in a second. So I think more positive because there's a chance that Richardson is going to be the guy. And if he is that, that creates a whole new level of like variance to what might happen. I think you nailed it. I think it's a, it's sort of like a a crown that goes one way or the other. Uh, For me, I feel more positive than I felt because I felt like this is what we were going to get from Emory. And the dread for me was that we got what we got from Emory and there is no relief. I also felt like Richardson was going to be good. We've talked about it all offseason, uh, you know, based upon the tiny film on Richardson that I have and the somewhat adequate amount of film on Emory. And so now I say, okay, well, great. The landscape that just got created was one in which Richardson has a lot of promise behind him. He's a special athlete. If you want to beat teams like Bama, it takes a transcendent quarterback. He's probably not ready for that this year, but it takes a guy like that. This guy is exciting. And as a football fan, I've said it once, I'll say it a hundred times. I want to be entertained. I want to have fun watching Florida football. I want to watch a guy do something that certainly I cannot do. I want him to wow me. You know, I want that to be part of the factor. And I want the guy to love my school. Maybe that's too selfish, too much to ask, but I feel like Anthony Richardson is a Gainesville guy. He loves being a Gator. He's a great teammate. I think Emory Jones does too. So I think like, for me, I feel more positive. I think there's several playmakers that we have. 
I think if you play Richardson, which we're going to talk about, it gives you a different ceiling level. I'm all about ceiling. We all know that. I'm obsessed with the ceiling level of a team. And I like to watch teams that are trying to find their ceiling. So for me, it's more positive. We talked about it at the opening because of some of the performances I saw the players. That's what made it more exciting for me. I feel exactly the same as I did about the coaching staff at the key positions, Grantham, perhaps how Dan is managing some things. But each year brings a chance for these guys to grow and change. So here's another opportunity, Allen, for Dan Mullen to handle a quarterback scenario. Last time it took Felipe Franks, unfortunately getting badly injured as we were about to lose to Kentucky, where a change was not going to be made. So I ask you this now. We're heading into USF this week. Would you start Anthony Richardson now? This is hard to say fully because there's some stuff that I don't know about him. But having just watched however many snaps he took, I would say yes. With my limited knowledge, I'm starting him. Now, he didn't make a lot of throws. We didn't ask him to throw the ball very much. He threw a bunch of downfield shots and, We'll get more into his main performance right now, right? At the end of the game, it seemed like they were just trying to get, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name, uh, our walk-on wide receiver, who's the grandson of the guy we put a banner up about. Yeah, Jackson. Yes. Yeah. Jackson uh, Jr., the Khalil third. Yeah. Jackson, so I believe. Grandfather Willie Jackson, yeah. Right, so mm-hmm. I have to say if that's like, I don't know, maybe even import somebody from last year. If that's Trevon Grimes, he's going to complete that pass to him. Just because the timing would be better, He's going to be able to go up and get the ball. It looks nice coming out of his hand. His best throw was uh, the slant in the end zone to Henderson, who got interfered with, would have caught the ball probably. Has a nice throw to Frazier's, who drops the ball. Wasn't perfect, but the ball comes out quick, accurate, decisively. I've seen enough that I want to – I've seen enough of Emory now that I want to try it. Now, maybe Richardson gets out there and throws like five picks because he can't read what's happening or he's too inaccurate as well. Emory's a good athlete. He's actually an excellent athlete. Richardson is potentially a superstar athlete. So I got to ride that wave because I kind of know what I'm going to get from Emory. If I'm going to beat Alabama, I'm, I I have a hard time believing we'd ever beat Alabama with Emory. In our current, in currently, <laughs> in our currently like situated team. Now, maybe if we had an all-time defense and we just wanted to like, not lose it for our offense. That's maybe a thought, but we don't have that. And so I think I have to start Richardson because I, if I want to beat Bama, now I'm not saying that if we play Richardson, we're going to beat Bama. That also seems a really tall task for a guy making his potentially second or first start, or who's a red shirt freshman. But I, if you ask me, can we? Well, theoretically, it's possible where I would say it's not possible with Emory. So I would go ahead and start him now because I'd want to play him against Bama. Let me ask you this. So I heard this from a few friends yesterday. They said, well, I'm in favor, not me, them, the friends. I'm in favor of starting Emory all the way through the Bama game and then starting Anthony Richardson afterwards. So essentially, Richardson, protect him from Bama. Don't let his confidence get rocked. You know, kind of like an NFL mentality. Let's keep him safe and secure and learn and then throw Emory to the Wolves and let him get abused by Alabama and then make the switch so that then you have the rest of your season in front of you. Richardson is safe. He's not hurt by Bama and carry on. So what are your thoughts to that strategy, which plenty of people think is viable? I think that's viable too. I don't know if I would necessarily do it per se, but 
this is like the NFL. Yeah, if you have a rookie quarterback in week one, you're going up against the Rams and Aaron Donald, and you're like, I don't want him to miss a protection and die. Let's play the other guy. We're not going to the playoffs anyway. I think there's some sense of that with Florida, right? I think we'll beat, you know, spoiler alert, we'll probably beat USF with Emory playing. And if you don't think you can beat Bama either way, if you lose to Bama, it's still everything's on your on the table for you. If you beat Georgia, if you run the table, you'll be back in the SEC title game. You have, a, If you have those kind of aspirations, that's still fine if you want to do that. I don't hate that. Um, that's, again, more ceiling than our floor than ceiling. I would listen to that argument if you don't think that Richardson is going to be ready by then. Just playbook-wise, getting us into that offense, there's going to be too much downside to playing him. I don't know. I, I wouldn't do that, but I would understand it. Yeah, it's certainly a viable argument. Now, for my answer to the question, no surprise here. I think no one is surprised wherever you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm definitely starting Richardson now. One, I love ceiling. That's what I coach for. I want to reach my ceiling. Two, I think Richardson's technical skills are solid. A lot has been yeah. made. A lot of Florida fans walked away from that game saying, we don't have a quarterback. I walked away saying, we potentially have a very special quarterback. Not a running back, not an athlete, a quarterback. You mentioned, Alan, none of Anthony Richardson's throws outside of the slants were perfect. But as I chronicle on the YouTube videos, he has several high-level quarterbacking skills naturally already. He's very young. He's got great eye movement. He's got sticky eyes, as I like to call it. He's sticky on the safety. He's slow to come off of him. He moves the safeties with his eyes. He has a cannon for an arm. He does display nice touch on the ball, despite the fact that obviously he missed some of those throws. Uh, I think he understands the game moves slowly for him. And, and one good example of this is there was that botched snap where he's supposed to throw right. a little screen. He picks it up, puts his head up immediately. His eyes are always downfield. He then moves in the pocket. He then purposely engages the oncoming linebacker and actually creates a really nice throw window for that bubble screen and unfortunately makes an inaccurate throw. But all of the the presence, the processing, the reading, the feel for the game, where are the openings, how do I get my guy into space, he has those things. Good quarterbacks have those things. And even in the five ridiculous plays he ran in the fourth quarter, he actually had receivers running a full set of routes. Yeah, can you talk about that throw to Weston? Some people were criticizing, like, if you lead him, it's a touchdown, but your thoughts on him getting well, the ball out there. Yeah, and I chronicle that one well. First of all, it's, it's fourth and four. It's not first down and 10. That's a great point. So if you throw an incompletion there, then you turn the ball over on downs. Second of all, everything about his processing was perfect. He uses his eyes to read the dropping corner who becomes a safety. He waits a quarter to a half of a second too late to actually throw that ball, allowing him to come open more. That could be because it's fourth and four. It could be because young guys tend to do that. But he still throws it in an appropriate time window. And then, as a lot of quarterbacks do, including NFL ones, if it's fourth down, you want to complete the pass. That's a great point. You don't want to just sling one for six and then you're out of it. Uh, so I think anyone who wants to hang that throw on Richardson is like, oh, yeah, well, look at that one. He underthrew it. Let's talk about what he did do correctly, which is he made the perfect read. His eyes were almost perfect throughout the read. He came right to the guy when he should have. He put the ball in the exact right spot on the field. Like it it's wasn't not far in danger enough. at all was not far enough, but it was the exact right tangent line. If the ball's nine yards further, he walks in for a six-point touchdown on fourth and four. But let's talk about this for a second. It's fourth and four, Allen, and Dan Mullen is comfortable yes, running a the ball post-wheel concept. 
What does that tell you about what Richardson has been doing in practice? It tells you a lot, I think. And to me, having seen Richardson practice, having spent some time around them when our flag football team overlapped, that dude can throw the football. And having seen only 20 of his plays on film now at UF, he knows what he's doing with his eyes. His mechanics are nice. He drives off of his back foot. He has great pocket presence, really nice awareness. He has all the raw tools and all the raw technical skills to build from. And this dude is not soft. You saw him on the field. If he takes a beating by Alabama, he's not the kind of guy that's going to just fold up his tent and go home. And in fact, show me a championship quarterback and I'll show you the guy who took his lumps. It's true. Right? So you can protect a guy all you want. At the end of the day, champions are champions because they overcome the losses, the adversity, the difficulties they have. And for me, it's a no-brainer to start Richardson. Start this right now and send a message to your team that says two things. Get in front of the team and say this. Look, Emery, I want to bring Emery up here. Emery, it's not over for you, first of all. Keep working. You don't know what's going to happen. Second of all, my job is to make hard decisions. That's for all of you. If you're a, if you're a freshman or if you're a senior, if the guy behind you begins to outplay you on Saturdays, that guy has to play. It's not because I'm ruthless. It's not because I don't like you. It's not because I'm not loyal. My loyalty is to creating the best football team that I can. And that's playing the best 22 guys. And that's how it has to be. So if you want to play on this team, put the best stuff on film on Saturdays. Listen to your coaches, do what's right, and do the little things. And you mentioned something that's important, Alan. If Richardson has all this talent, but he can't get us in and out of plays, if he doesn't know the offense, he's not ready to play. By all accounts, he is ready to play. He's playing on the third series. He's playing later on in the game. So I don't think that's real. So if that's not real, there's no leg to stand on because Richardson does everything better than Emery. He's a better runner. He's a stronger thrower. He's a better reader of what's going on in the field. He has a larger playbook open to him. And he's the guy that's got the buzz. He's the guy that your team is going to believe in, rally around, get excited about. The fans will too. It doesn't mean, with all that stuff being said, that he's going to win something this year or even even fulfill his potential. Right. But you have to coach upon the potential that you have when you've got a guy who you think can race past the guy you currently have. You have to give that guy his shot and then evaluate. So I think it's that time. I think Emery's had plenty of time in the system. I think from our own reports, Alan, that you've compiled in the offseason, the coaches know Emery's limitations. We've said it on the very podcast. You said it on this podcast. Emery's been struggling in scrimmages, struggling in practice. The team does not have him throwing the ball on intermediate or deep routes very often. It's got to be time for this team to recognize, hey, I value you. I value all your effort. I'm going to do my best I can to win. And if Richardson struggles, I'll put Emery in. If Emery struggles, I'll put in one of our other younger guys. I will keep trying to make sure that I get the best guy for the job. And if you're too fragile to play quarterback because I'm trying to get the best result and you know I support you, then you're not my kind of quarterback anyway. So I think this is going to be fascinating all year long. We talked about it in the offseason. It seems to have already happened. Wow, it happened fast. And now how does it get handled? And look, Dan Mullen, to close this one, Alan, is treading on a, a super thin high wire line with the fans. Most fans are neutral to frustrated about the comments of the media in the past year. Frustrated with keeping Grantham. Frustrated with the fear that maybe Dan Mullen will keep playing Emory for a long time if he hasn't earned it. If Emory earns it, play Emory. So I don't know that he's got a ton of relationship capital in the bank to just keep saying to the media for the next five weeks, Emory's our guy, Emory's our guy, Emory's our guy. 
what, so what are you even talking about? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to see what he does. So I would assume that Richardson's going to play regardless against USF. For sure. And just in the same way he did in this game, just as Emory played under Trask, right? Whether we thought it was a good idea or not. And here's the other thing. I think even at the floor, again, if I remove like playbook considerations and getting us to the line, things like that, just in the, if you just want him to do exactly the same things Emory has done, mostly run the ball. I think he's already better at that. He's a better, stronger runner. And I think he's at least as accurate as Emory. So if, if I can remove my doubts about if I call this play, can he get us lined up? Can he switch protections? Again, even if he's a little bit worse than that, I think it already is better potentially, right? Again, we've only seen him do it a couple times. The teams were not respecting his zone read skills. Uh, I don't know. Again, we could come, like, Richardson can play five games where we're like, eh, you know what? He's a little bit better than Emory, but he's not that great. We thought he could be Superman, and he's fine. We are where we are. But I would like to see him try for sure. Absolutely. And that's the key. I want to see him try. Dan Mullen should want to see him try. And I will tell you this, Alan. If I were at practice, I would easily be able to decide who should be the guy. I have not coached in college football. I have not coached the Gators. I am out of my depth saying those things. But in my experience, whether it's coaching flag football at the pro level, whether it's, you know, the guys, I won't mention them since you guys like to give me crap for, but professional athletes who played at a high level, I would pick a guy and I would have a pretty good degree of confidence that that's my guy because I know who's better. I happen to feel very strongly that Dan Mullen, unlike the Kyle Trask, Felipe Franks battle, I think Dan Dan Mullen knows that Richardson's a better quarterback. I think he knows he's a better thrower. I'm quite confident that's the case. Will he be able to leave his Achilles heel of extreme loyalty to veteran players and guys who have been in the team for a long time? Or will he stay too sticky with it for too long to where it frustrates the fans and the team and potentially costs us more? I think at this stage, Emory's going to be the starter this week. Richardson will play. And then Bama, who knows? Who knows what happens? Either way, they're both going to play. But to me, I know, I feel very strongly that Richardson's the guy who needs the shot. And that's all you can do in football is give a guy their shot and find out what you have. Alan and I are not, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't have special powers. Trask in his Kentucky game with a full offense, we knew it. That's why I could say, don't expect this guy to go away. We can't say that about Richardson yet because we haven't seen him run with the first team. I haven't seen him get that shot yet. Where the other team is really trying to beat you, game on the line. When we see that, stay tuned. I will break it down and I will tell you what I really think. But as of right now, I love the potential. I think it's time to give him a shot. Speaking of potential, you could bet with BetUS, which is our presenting sponsor. And it is potential because you could also obviously not win, (laughs) which is what happened to you and I last week as we look at our picks. But sports betting season is fully kicked off. And BetUS is one of the oldest sports books. Their user interface is actually great. I use it myself and online. It's a really clean, simple way to live bet and do a bunch of other things. But they've been around since 1994. To sign up, simply visit BetUS.com and use our promo code. I know I'd gotten a message from several of you. You were able to do this. Our promo code is GNation125, GNation125, to get a 125% 
Sportsbook sign-up bonus. That is the best bonus you can get. You can't get that without that code. So if you start with 100 bucks, you'll get an additional $125 added to your account. If you want to use crypto, use the code GNATION200 to get an even higher bonus in that regard. So GNATION125 or GNATION200. All in all, if you use one of those codes, you're actually supporting our show as well. For each one of you that signs up, Alan and I get a hundo bomb or 100 bucks. So we appreciate that. So visit BetUS today and good luck picking. As always, do it responsibly. Do it for fun. Do not try to get rich sports gambling. That is ridiculous. But it is a fun pastime, so do it wisely. We huh? need some more luck. Yeah, we, on the other hand, got hammered, which disclaimer we say it every week. Hey, early on, who knows? I don't bet at all in week one. I didn't bet last week because I don't know what the heck's going on. It's it's, it's crazy out there. Let's look at these games. Ohio State, 14-point favorite over Minnesota. Great football game. Yeah. And they wind up getting a push with a victory 45-31. Were you impressed with both Ohio State and Minnesota? Uh, relatively, I was more impressed with Minnesota. They bounced back. Unfortunately, their running back, I think, is now out for the year, which is super sad. But he was a tough dude. Ohio State looks gettable. They're super talented. They might get better as it goes on. The defense didn't look as it normally does. Stroud is is definitely not there. Their quarterback as a starter yet. They're beatable for sure. I mean, Minnesota was up at halftime. So, the, you know, we'll, we'll see after game 12 what Ohio State looks like. But if you've got a shot at them early, yeah, you could take them down. Yeah, concerns on defense for Ohio State. But great job by Minnesota. I think that's the storyline there. Really sad they lose sort of an all-world running back for them. Really talented guy. Uh, but all in all, nice opener uh, for a major yeah, game. Yeah, Thursday night. Boise State goes on the road to UCF in a game that was delayed forever and finished at like 2.30 a.m. Eastern time. And a lot of people didn't even know when they woke up that UCF had an epic comeback under Gus Malzahn to get their first win, 36-31. I was asleep, certainly. Thoughts on the beginning of the Gus Malzahn era? Were you... It was off to a very bad and slow start. Yeah. As Boise State was cranking them. But I think now there's generally good feelings once they got it going. Uh, you know, this is Gus Malzahn. He, he, look, he wins a lot of big games. Say what you want about the guy. He's got more wins against Nick Saban than anyone else does. So big game win for them there. Number 10, North Carolina. On the road, Alan, your call here. You picked, you picked Virginia Tech. We both said that they were feisty. They were tough. They were up and down last year. They could be great. They could be terrible. They win 17-10. Yeah, really just North Carolina looked rather pedestrian. They missed those running backs. They didn't look dangerous at receiver. Um, Yeah, I mean, they were the most hyped team in the offseason, like kind of the darling to, you know, spoil things for Clemson maybe. They got a long way to go. Yeah, a long way to go there. A kind of a classic Mac Brown result maybe. You don't know what you're going to get with him as maybe, coach. Maybe, yeah. Number 19, Penn State, also seeking a bounce-back year, went on the road to Wisconsin in what was a great football atmosphere in that noon kickoff. And they beat Wisconsin 16-10 despite the fact that Wisconsin ran 97 plays on offense. They only scored 10 points. Yeah, Penn State's offense looked terrible. Both, Really, both defenses looked great. It's crazy that Penn State kept keeping them out of the end zone. I mean, that that's an awesome result for that unit to come away and steal a win when your offense can't do anything. Yeah, totally a theft of a win. Penn State, though, major questions, I think, on offense. Number one, Alabama. This would have been my lock of the week. I didn't make one because I don't bet on week one. Uh, 
I mean, Bama's just... You should have. What uh, words are there? They just, just housed Miami 44-13. The game was, was never close, yeah. not even for a second. I mean, were they up like 41-3 to or something like that? I mean, they... Talk about taking your foot off the accelerator. They could have put 100 up if they wanted to. Um, Bama always crushes people in these neutral site openers. I don't know why you'd even sign up to play them. I would not sign up to play them. And also, they have, what, three NFL head coaches on their staff yeah. right now. Bill O'Brien's an offensive coordinator. That's ridiculous. And they looked amazing. They're just, their stuff is just so good. Their team is so sound. It, it's really, it's really, truly remarkable. Like, there's everyone else, and then there's them. And they're just so much better than everyone else. It's it's scary to think of how many more championships Nick Saban is capable of winning if he stays healthy. I mean, almost every single year, they're, they're going to have to be your favorite. They have this ball rolling. And unfortunately for Florida, we're in the SEC. All right, West Virginia taking on my, my family's Terrapins, Maryland and Loxley. Sneak out a win, 30-24. I did not watch this game. Uh, but it's a good win for Maryland. Good W. You got uh, Tua, you know, younger brother of Tua there. Talia? Slamming around. Talia, yeah, slamming around. Number 17, Indiana. Wow. We question this, Alan. Iowa's a hard place to win, but Iowa beats them like a drum 34-6. to I would say this is the game that I picked that I was like, man, I I felt, of the games I kind of had knowledge about, this is the one I felt least good about. I was like, there's a chance that Iowa just beats the brakes off then. I wanted Indiana to be good again this year. They were such a fun story last year. Man, Iowa steamrolled them. That cranked him. Oregon, number 11. Oregon survives Fresno State out there in the Pac-12. 31-24. Worried? Mm, yeah, I, I would be. Um, <laughs> that doesn't mean everything, right? But we talked about Ohio State being gettable. Oregon plays them. This week that was the monster game, but I don't I don't know if Oregon's in shape enough. Kayvon Thibodeau, their all world defensive end, got hurt. I don't know if he's gonna play next week. It's kind of kind of a bummer. Yeah, not so great. We'd chronicled the fact that Oregon fans were all in, but I don't know if anyone else was. They have to prove it. Number twenty three, Louisiana at Texas. This this for me, Alan, was one of the surprising, really nice wins of the weekend. Yeah. For any team. Louisiana, very well coached, competent football team in Texas under Sharkeesian gets a twenty point win dooming me to be on the wrong side of a Texas bet yet again. I should have just gone the other way against you there just because you and Texas are... 100%. That's got to be your strategy. <laughs> yep, and they, that's a good win for them, for sure. Yeah, great win. San Jose State at USC. USC winning 30-7. to Yeah, that's surprising. I thought San Jose would keep it much closer than that we both went towards San Jose State. Uh, so, as it's true, we lost most of these games. But, I mean, Pac-12... South looks good. Pac-12 North looks terrible because you had a fun result in the next one. Yeah, crosstown rival UCLA taking care of LSU. What a unique matchup that was. Chip Kelly getting things rolling. They win 38-27. They controlled this game. Yeah, they had a million yards on the ground. Already, are we are we ready to start talking about Orgeron as Gene Chizik 2.0? Of course, yes. Different version, but the, the the grand experiment of hiring two of the best coordinators works in theory until you recognize that the modern college football game is you get a great coordinator, they're gone in a year. So how do you keep getting the best coordinators? Like by definition, right? That's really you hard. You don't have a new best coordinator available every year. So when you had a guy uh, like Dave, you know, Dave Aranda, and then you had obviously Joe, Joe Brady, Brady and you had everyone else, then it works. But those guys just aren't available. And when you don't have them, you have a head coach who's 
not a coach. And I think that's tricky. More importantly, though, Chip Kelly. Yeah. What a resurrection. I mean, he was like mailing it in and now he has UCLA rolling. They're a dangerous football team. They are. I'm, I'm excited to watch them play. I like when US, UCLA and USC are good. UCLA is not good very often, but it's fun. It's so much better for college football to have some teams in California that are good. All right, number five, Georgia, a defensive thriller. They don't score a single touchdown on offense, but neither does Clemson, and they win 10-3. to three. I don't really know what to make of this game. I, I mean, it's ripe for overreaction because this was the marquee. It's going to have a ton of consequences for the rest of the season about playoff implications i'm sure how good were the defenses how bad are the offenses clinton's offense looked really rough but i i do assume that georgia defense was great i'm surprised that georgia wasn't able to score either surprised that that it was so low scoring not that the defenses weren't going to be good but this is on the lower end of that for sure yeah i'm surprised both teams have quarterbacks think that are very capable watching the game in the stands on my cell phone as i watched florida play simultaneously Georgia's defense looked unbelievable. I mean, they were just all over the backfield of Clemson. Withhold judgment on this one. Yeah. Both teams elite, elite talent-wise. Both teams excellent on the defensive end. I think the safe thing to say, though, is for, for those people that continue to think that Kirby Smart is some sort of buffoon as a coach, you're just wrong, and you should deal with it. Like, he hasn't won a title yet. Maybe he underdevelops his players. But there's a handful of guys in the country that are capable of winning a national title, and he is certainly one of them. Clemson has lost how many games in the past three years? Yeah. So, I mean, I, if you look at Georgia's schedule, I don't know that we're really going to know anything about them until they play Florida in the cocktail party or possibly Alabama in the title game because correct, it, they have a pretty light schedule along yeah. the way. And we won't know anything about Clemson until the playoff. Their schedule right. is unbelievably soft. All right, number nine, Notre Dame on the road against Florida State. This was incredibly zany last night. I actually stayed up and watched this, both me and the wife, because it was nuts. You know, at first I'm like, okay, Notre Dame's up by 18. Let's watch FSU kind of go down in flames. They're going to put the pressure on them. And then FSU came roaring back. Of course, the storyline, Mackenzie Milton. If you're not familiar, James, tell him. This is amazing. Has one of the worst leg injuries ever for a college football player or NFL player, a long two-year road to recovery, finds himself back in the game because the starter, who does not throw well for Florida State, lost his helmet. They put McKenzie in for a play, and they kept him in, and he led this amazing comeback. And even though I don't like Florida State at all, I couldn't help but be caught up in it. It was a really amazing story, amazing moment to see his parents there. The atmosphere, I thought, in, in Doak was as good as ever. I mean, I mean, it wasn't full per se, but it was an electric college football game. That was a phenomenally fun game to watch. And FSU sure. winds up losing in overtime. I know the kind of like story beginning kind of falls flat. You know, the kicker misses the field goal, the Bobby Bowden Memorial field goal there um, that they've been doing by so many of those. At least it wasn't wide, right? Yes. I think that might have oh, done them. Man, in that might have sure. broken them. Um, you know, we knew I said this on our thread. This is just really bad news because I think no matter how good you think Notre Dame is or FSU is, that they're not a total dumpster fire. The Willie Taggart era is over. It remains to be seen if Mike Norvell can bring them to like top notch, but they're definitely a more competent team, and I'm sad about it. I already miss Willie at FSU. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Louisville Old Miss has not happened yet at the time of this recording, so we'll fill you in next week for that one. Daytona Steve, also a rough week, no surprise. Oh, 0 man. for 1 on the parlay and 0 for 1 on his lock as Oklahoma. Ooh, man. Survived. Almost loses. Yeah. 
survive Tulane at home. Not a good look for a team many like. All right, SEC roundup, Alan. Bowling Green at Tennessee. Tennessee wins 38-6. to I'm sure they appreciated the offense up there, though. Yeah, I didn't get to watch any of this one, but you know, I think for Tennessee, they they the hype train builds with each one they have, and I love it. I want them to be fully hyped when they play Florida. All right, number six, A and M breaks in a new quarterback, Kane Skeen. They win forty-one to ten over Kent State, as expected here. Yeah, maybe the more surprising thing, Kentucky. Not that they beat Louisiana Monroe, but that their new quarterback, their transfer Levis. Four TDs, 367 yards. That's a lot for a Kentucky quarterback. They got a new OC there. Shocking. That's great yeah. signs for them against anyone to be passing the ball around like that. Arkansas beats Rice, 38-17. Rice was winning this game uh, for a while, actually. So Arkansas got it going in the second half, but a nice opening win for them. Extremely close here. Mississippi State scrapes it out, 35-34 against La Tech. Ooh, man, I didn't get to watch this one either, but I imagine that the fans in Starkville are on edge. Missouri finally puts away Central Michigan 34-24. How does it make you feel? You've tapped Missouri as yeah. sort of this dark house. I don't really team. know they, anything they about Central Michigan. You know, um, If you look at some other conferences, you look at Oklahoma Tulane. I think just getting a win in week one in the modern college football era is good. Because um, a lot of these kind of mid-tier teams can be better. I have no idea what this means. Sure. I did it not might watch not mean game. anything. You're right. We'll see. Again, I have no idea what to make of the score. I wanted to ask Grover, and I didn't. Auburn beats Akron 60-10. to 10 Yeah, Grover, first our, game our of the fr- Brian friend Hudson of the era. podcast. Yeah, Auburn grad. Um, they looked good. I read a few reports. Didn't see a lot of either, but they, they you know, as Akron. But either way, apparently very polished, very clean, very fundamental signs that what you would expect from a guy with his resume. That yeah, football team's going to play solid and smart. Winning 21-10 to 10 or something like that. Sure is. Eastern Illinois at South Carolina. South Carolina... Puts it on him, 46-0. Let's go. Beamer ball. Getting started. And the Vandy Rebuild gets off to a slow start. East Tennessee basically works them 23-3. to I mean, you know what's funny is that Vanderbilt's still in the SEC. It's remarkable. In comes Texas. In comes Oklahoma. Vanderbilt's a phenomenal school. I don't know why they subject themselves to being in this conference athletically because they could be fine in other conferences. It's just a mismatch. It's well, a they're good in job. a lot of other sports, but they they are, hang. but not enough to be a major scenario. But either way, that's to lose to an in-state Eastern directional school like that is mm, that hurts. All right, notes from games really quickly here. Oklahoma survives Tulane. We talked about Spencer Rattler. I have never been high on him. I think he's way overhyped. Uh, he struggled in this game. He slings the ball all over the place. He struggles with accuracy at times. Oklahoma schedule is really easy. Keep an eye on them, but not a great result there. Uh, you mentioned the Pac-12 North really, really struggling, uh, which they all did. Not a good look at all from them. And then news for us, Alan. So this is kind of a weird one. Uh, Andrew Chatfield, where's number 10 for the Gators, is kind of a buck. Would play all along the defensive line. Undersized guy, but pretty effective as a reserve. I think we probably, I don't know if we said this news, he entered the portal a while back, but he's still on the team. And he's still in the portal. Mullen commented on a little bit. I mean, he was dressed for the game. I saw him out there. I was like, oh, that's weird. I'm not sure if he played or not, but I guess he's going to be around for as long as they want him to be. I mean, I don't think you turn down an extra experienced SEC defensive lineman, but I don't know if he'll play it all this year. 
No, definitely not. Just one of the one of the normal routine day to day activities of the transfer portal. These I days. guess so. All right, let's talk about USF, the South Florida Bulls. The Gators are playing them on the road. A rare road game early season for the Gators. USF is 0-1 because they got demolished by NC State 45-0. to Last week we were like, oh, this is a nice stair step. Play FAU, then play USF, then play Bama. Maybe FAU is better than USF. I don't know. I think I so. I don't think NC State is a juggernaut, and they freaking wax them. Maybe we'll get back to the end of the year and be like, man, NC State is awesome, but I don't know about that. The Gators are favored by 29. This game's at 1 p.m. I don't think we're going to talk too much about USF because I don't know that they pose that much of a threat. Yeah, they don't. USF last year was 1-8. and eight. Vegas obviously is telling you already in a road game that they think that FAU is better. Then USF, uh, there is some notable stuff here, though, Alan. Let, let's talk about their coach for a second. Yeah. Jeff Scott was a longtime former Clemson OC. He's in his second year, so first year, one and eight, second year. You hope to show some signs yeah, of I think a rebuild would... and yeah. you know, 45-0 NC State. I mean, too early to say, but yeah. obviously not what you want. I like the hire. He's a good recruiter. I think everyone was willing to throw out last year for whatever reason. But, yeah, as you said, not not a good starting point. Tell us about the talent. Yeah, talent-wise, USF 69th, no no five stars, two four stars, and then UF 7th, six five stars, 49 four stars. We tell you these things because it illustrates kind of often like the gap that exists between a school like UF and USF, and it is a significant, significant gap. USF does return 18 starters, Allen, nine on offense, nine on defense. But again, returning starters only get you so far if the quality of those starters is, is much lower. All right, their coaching staff... Charlie Weiss Jr. is their offensive coordinator. He's in his second year. You may remember, maybe not, he was a quality con- control coach. Now that's like a lower tier guy on the staff back at Florida in 2011. Of course, he's the son of Charlie Weiss. He's been at Kansas. He's been at Bama. Some time in the NFL with the Falcons and then the last couple of years with Florida Atlantic. So, you know, a younger guy getting a shot here. And... On the other end of that, Glenn Spencer, his second year, a lot older, been a lot of places, nothing all that descript or nondescript, veteran defensive coordinator. I don't know what that really buys you when you're at USF, but there he is. All right, let's get into the analysis of USF, and this will be a first in the modern era of the GNFP. There will be no analysis. Once USF got smoked so badly by NC State and given their 1-8 and eight record last year, we're just going to tell you about some other players and a little bit about what happened, and that's going to be it. I didn't watch film on them. Instead, we'll talk about what we expect from Florida in this game. I think that's the more important narrative for you as a fan. But USF is splitting time between two quarterbacks, a grad transfer, Cade Fortin, and then Timmy McLean. Uh, they have a running back by committee, lots of carries to different guys. They don't have like a notable superstar that you should look out for. USF gave up almost 300 yards of rushing to NC State. So that bodes significantly well for Florida. And they only had 271 yards of total offense. So not a lot in this game that should pose a different challenge from what Florida had against FAU. And in fact, the signs would say it's going to be a step down, as you mentioned, Alan. So what should we look for as fans in this game? There's no injuries from our team. 
We don't really have any notable news. You've got a couple notes on here about potentially getting Lamar Goods back, a defensive yeah, tackle. You know, maybe like third string defensive tackle. We're, we're light. So you saw a guy, Tyrone Truesdale, actually come out and play because we're missing three defensive tackles for this game. So that's not good. Maybe getting him back. The other guys, Jalen Humphreys, Jalen Lee, are still probably not going to play. We don't really need them in this game, obviously, but you would like to get them back. But I think the great news is that there are no injuries from this game. Yeah. So what to watch for? Stage is set. Florida's very healthy. We've come off the Emory Jones, Anthony Richardson discussion. Uh, here we are. What are we watching for in this game? Why tune in? Why pay attention? Well, I think Anthony Richardson is the key, right? How much does he play? What does he look like? Do they give him more time? Does the defense continue to move move forward? Do we get better play? Do we get more aggressive play? What does that look like? I doubt it, you know, but um, I think it's a good test for the team. They need more reps. They need to be more experienced when they play Alabama. I think this is all at this point all about Alabama. Um, so obviously you're not going to show the trick plays, but are you able to do the kinds of things that you want to do to be able to play? The young guys got a lot of reps. I think they'll continue to get a lot of reps. I think you want the UF team to look good. I mean, this is weird because usually we, the kind of language that I'm using would be like if we're playing Central Michigan. I know I'd said I don't know much about them, but we're playing New Mexico State or something, a completely overmatched foe. USF shouldn't be that in the modern era, but I think they are in this game. So do we look effective? Do we play smart and efficient and those are very vague terms, but I just want to see us look good. And I want to see us be more explosive on offense. And I would love to see as much Anthony Richardson as I could get. That's the storyline, right? Is is how many snaps does Anthony Richardson get versus Emory Jones? Who starts is not as important to me. Uh, just because knowing Dan Mullen, it's so unlikely he starts Anthony Richardson. But how many snaps do they get? What do the plays look like for Anthony Richardson? What are they asking him to do? How does Emory Jones look, obviously, in the second game? That's the headliner. That's the storyline. From what we know about all the other areas, like what does the offense look like? What does the defense look like? We're not going to know the answer to those questions, especially defensively until we play a real team. There's nothing Grantham's going to do this week that's going to change anyone's mind about anything. We're going to have to get some real opponents in. So I want to watch... Richardson, I want to watch Jones, and I want to watch some of those other individual players I singled out. How does a guy like Perkins look this week? How do the safeties look? Uh, are, are some of these guys getting more playing time or less? How does Hopper look? Right, um, A chance to see some of the guys that flashed in week one. Is it just a random flashing of one week, or is there a trend here? Is this something we're seeing that can be built that's upon? That's a good point. And so I think that's what this kind of game is for me. This is going to be an individual player game because, again, we can't take really anything away from the scheme that's being thrown into this game. We're not going to read too much into that kind of stuff. Uh, we're not in the prediction business of telling you who Dan is going to decide to do or what. We're in the analysis business, so we'll watch the players play. We'll provide you analysis, and we'll let you know what happens. So for me, I'm looking forward to analyzing the play of a lot of individuals that I'm pretty excited about. A lot of guys on Florida's team are flashing. I want to see what they can do in this week and see what we can clean up from last week. Yeah, what does the playing time look like? What's the mixture look like? Who's getting more reps? Who flashes again? I, I think it's, we had a lot of questions answered game one of what it was going to look like. That's a baseline. Where do we move up or down off of that? 
All right, so keys to the game. For me, my key to this game flowing from watching individuals play is going to be a simple one. For the future of this season and my own preference, I would like to see Richardson get an equal to amount of snaps or more than Emory Jones. I think that would signal to me that, hey, I like the way things are going management-wise. So that's not a key to winning the game. That's the key to winning the more important game, which I think is the development of the team. So I'm going to look at that Richardson-Emory Jones snap breakdown, see what that looks like, see what we have. And then, as I mentioned, Florida should be able to run again for well over, this time I'm going to say 350 yards. I think that we proved we could run for 400 on FAU. We've got a sieve of defense here in USF. If we're going to be a prolific running team, which means we're going to be an average plus running team. I don't think Florida is going to be a prolific running team in the SEC, Allen, but we could be one of the top three rushing teams and we could be formidable against teams not named Georgia and Alabama. So I think for that to continue, we need to continue to have another good day on the ground. So I like to see Florida get a whopping 350 or more in rushing yards. Those are my two keys. What are yours? So I'm going to say chunk plays in the passing game. That's what I would like to see from either quarterback, really. Yeah, anyone, please. Um, so that would be not if you're this kind of new stat of air yards, which is harder to track. But are they throwing the ball down the field? Right. Are we picking up plays of 15 to 20 yards with the ball traveling in the air? And then on defense, I would like to see us attempt an interception. That would be nice to have a pick. I'd like that a lot. Yeah. So a pick would be great for me. And this is like where I want to see us excel, not really win the game. But if we're excelling, we're, we're probably doing those things. I like that. On defense, this is not a key to the game, but I'll just throw my wish list in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I would like to see our defense <laughs> tighten up our coverages, uh, especially on third down in a more aggressive sense. You know, I think you can do that without giving stuff away. Uh, you don't have to always play man to do that either, of course. There's a variety of ways to do it, but I like it. Let, let's look at like, you know, kind of um, balls deflected, passes defended, stuff like that. Let's have our let's have our defenders closer to passes that are being thrown, or let's have some sacks occur because the quarterback doesn't have anywhere to go with the ball and our pressure gets there, you know, some of that kind of stuff. So I like that. Let's see an aggressive secondary. All right, score prediction. Alan, I'll go first. You went first last time. If NC State scored 45 and they rushed for all those yards, I'm assuming their quarterback is marginally more competent than what we're putting out there right now because I don't trust you know how many snaps Richardson will get. I think Florida's going to score about the same. So I'm going to take Florida at 45. And I'm going to take USF. I don't see USF getting goose egg twice in a row. That seems unlikely to have that happen to you twice. But they are pretty terrible. So I'm going to go 45-10 in sort of a similar situation to maybe what would occur with FAU, a score here and there, scores late, something like that, just sort of what tends to happen with Florida defenses. Wow. Okay, I'm right on here. I, I was going to go 42-10. Amazing. All right, do it. Let's do it. We're, lock, we're locked in. We never, I promise you, we never, never, ever share these picks until we sit here and do them. So there are the scores all right great well let's put usf to bed that's that was a nine minute segment on wow. our opposing team because next week with bama coming we know there's going to be a whole lot of time dedicated to scouting alabama and giving you all of the analysis on what things look like how to attack them how they'll attack us and etc okay let's talk about the slate for week two way less of a heavy slate than week one week one was kind of magical there's still some fun games here we didn't talk about this team yet very much okay so also the AP poll is not coming out till 
in its regular time because there's still games to be played. So the rankings I'm going to give you are last week's rankings. So know that these are going to change, but I'll still give them to you anyway. All right. Number six, Texas A&M minus 17 at Colorado playing a road game. Really? What a fun and weird game yeah. for A&M to go on the road to Colorado. I like it though. Uh, I'm a believer in Jimbo Fisher. Team's got a lot of talent. I'm going to take, I don't like this number 17s again. These are the worst spread numbers for me, but I'm gonna take Jimbo here. I think I'll take Colorado not to win, but to cover. Yeah, of course, for sure. I like that. All right, number 21, Texas, presumably moving up, favored by six and a half at Arkansas. Now, this is interesting to yeah. me because Arkansas struggled with Rice. This feels low, given what Texas just did against a really good Louisiana team. You never pick against the SEC is like generally a pretty good rule in these scenarios. I'm always wrong, and because I love the SEC, I'm going to do the SEC a big favor here, and I'm going to pick Texas to cover the spread. All right, I don't know, but I'm going to take my own advice. I'm just going to go the other way. Smart. And take Texas. That's we'll why. See. see, way to learn. That's what we talk about here. Put the feedback into motion. <laughs> All right, Pittsburgh favored by three at Tennessee. So some interconference SEC games here. This is where my I, I want Tennessee to be yeah. good, Alan. And my heart, my heart is here for them. And this is a heart pick, and I'm going to pick Tennessee. I have no feel for Pittsburgh and how they're going to be. I'm not confident in Tennessee at all, so therefore I'm going to pick Pittsburgh. Nicely done. like it. All right, now an SEC matchup here. Missouri at Kentucky. Kentucky favored by five. Are you believing the Kentucky hype? I have not got to watch either of these teams, and we talk about this early on. By week seven, I'll be Nostradamus here picking. <laughs> not really. but Not really, of course. But in this one... I don't know. I, I mean, I, ugh, I like what you, you you incepted me though. When you showed me those passing stats, I'm all on it. I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm drinking the Kool Aid. Let's go with Kentucky in a passing offense here. Yeah, this feels like this number is low enough. Just who I think is going to win, and I'll go with Kentucky here too. The aforementioned NC State destroyer of worlds, favored by two and a half at Mississippi State. Yeah, given what Mississippi State just did, and having seen nothing of it, I have to take NC State here. Man, I just feel like this is going to be funky. I just got a total gut feeling here. Mike Legion, Mississippi State. I'll go Mississippi State here. A lot of showing you the weakness of the SEC, I think, right now. A lot of these SEC yeah. schools not looking so great in their cross-conference uh, cross matchups. Well, the ACC looked terrible mostly well, the, as well. Well, we know the ACC is terrible. That's a, it's a given. All right. Are you feeling upset here, James? App State at Miami. Miami favored by eight. Miami has to be in a bad place mentally. That's the problem with playing Alabama first is right. whatever dreams you felt like you had or you were capable of, your players now know that they are not capable of those things. So can they get up and play a game and feisty App State team immediately? I think this is where a veteran quarterback gets you what you need here, and I'm going to take Miami. Man, I'm I'm tempted here. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take App State I love just because I like the points here. I like it. All right. Number 20, Washington, who will certainly not be number 20 because they lost to Montana. That's right. They will be gone. At Michigan. Michigan only favored by six. Yeah, Michigan is a team that most people think is not going to be very good this year. But unlike a lot of other teams, they at least won their game handily. Slow start, but they did wind up winning handily. And I'll take Harbaugh. Why not? I don't know. I mean, how do you take Washington here? I don't don't think you can take Washington at minus six after that. Now, they could bounce back in a huge way, but I can't. I can't pick them right now. That's for sure. And I won't. All right. The Holy War. Love it. Number 24, Utah minus seven at BYU. 
This is supposed to be a pretty significant transition year for BYU, so I'm gonna take I'm gonna take Utah to cover that touchdown. I will too. Um, I don't I don't have a feel for what Utah is gonna be like, um, but they've been pretty solid. Um, excited to see them play. This is a fun game. This is a this is gonna be a crazy game. Now, I'm tempted to with this game just to take whoever's getting the points because it tends to be close. But I think Utah will be better. All right. Uh, in the game that the guys from Shutdown Full Cast have turned El Asico, not El Clasico, uh, number 18 Iowa at number 7 Iowa State. Iowa State's favorite by four. What do you think? This is a huge one. Iowa State barely won. Right. They're clones. We didn't talk about it. We saved it for this. They survived. Survived. A week one battle, which they tend to do, but they tend to get better. They lost last year to Louisiana. Louisiana. And they did, and they returned everyone. They're, you know, people love them. Iowa, a better win in week one, certainly. They looked really good. But that doesn't matter because it's 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 who you're playing. But I'm going to take momentum here and say that Iowa's feeling good. Iowa State may be feeling pressure as a favorite in top 10 team. I shouldn't pick against the clones, Alan, but I'm going to do it. For sure. I got to take the clones here. You have to. If yeah. you didn't, I was going to send a note. <laughs> Can't be done. Um, I do not feel confident in that. I mean, four points is low. And if they were favored by any more than that, I think I would have had to just pick Iowa because I think it's going to be a really good game. Iowa could definitely win this game. They looked really good. Iowa State, traditionally, they kind of sleepwalk through that first week, but luckily for them, they got to win. Number 11, Oregon. At number four, Ohio State. Ohio State by favored by 14. I yes. don't really like either of these two teams in this game. No, certainly the marquee game here, but Ohio State has proven that they can play and win big games. They just played a feisty, tough game. I think they're in a better state. They're going to come home. They got tested. Team, good teams make drastic improvements from week one to week two. And for that reason, it's crazy to think of this. Like, I don't, I just, oh, this isn't against Oregon pick. 14 is a big number. For a team that has a lot of talent, which Oregon does, but until I until they prove to me they're capable of playing at the level their ranking indicates, I'm going to go ahead and, and trust the commodity here of Iowa State. Iowa as well, and this is a pick. Oregon not having Kayvon Thibodeau, I think that he's their best player. Not having him in the game is huge for them. They kind of build their team around him, so it's brutal. You can't have your best guy not playing. Perhaps he does play, but for now, looks like he might not. All right, Daytona Steve after a rough week 1 is coming back in week 2 with the nocation parlay, we're going to call it, cuz he's back from his vacation which struggles. Now it's a nocation parlay. He's back right? to his roots. You know, he's got he's back at the track this he's week. He's at the track, right? And so he's off of vacation. If we could call it the the dog track parlay, but that's every week. But this is the nocation. He's back. He's serious. He felt bad. And he's got a tasty little parlay for you here. He has South Carolina plus two against East Carolina. He has UGA favored by 26 over UAB. He has AM at minus six and a half against Arkansas, as we mentioned. NC State at minus two and a half against Mississippi State. Liberty, the Flames, make an appearance at minus five versus Troy. Texas, as we mentioned earlier, at minus six and a half against Arkansas. And Michigan. Favored Washington at minus six. So Steve liking a lot of teams, Alan, that are playing against SEC teams. If you hit all those teams, it's 86 to one. So if you basically bet $2 and change, you get 200 bucks. Of course, the parlays are lottery tickets. Those are for fun. His lock of the week is South Carolina plus two versus East Carolina. All right. Any other items here for you, Alan? I don't think so. Um, 
fun to be back in the swamp again. That was a fun atmosphere. I think all across college football, as you said, was really fun. Um, so fun to see all those traditions, Wisconsin, Virginia Tech. So great. I, I kind of forgot how much I missed it. So really thankful for it. feel the same way. It, it felt awesome to have all those college football games back. And, and no matter how excited you are or wherever you are, when you're actually out there and you're watching them and you see the pageantry and the atmosphere and the fans and just what makes college football so unique across the world. Such a joy. Uh, as always, if you like what you hear on the show, of course, follow us. As we mentioned, check us out. Write to us. We get some messages during the week. Hey, can I ask you questions to ask on the podcast? Of course you can. We're always trying to make sure that we hit the right narrative and we hit the right questions and we answer what's on your mind. We want to analyze those things. So if you have thoughts, send them to us. And if it makes sense and it's what others are saying, we want to cover it for you. Uh, as always, it's such a pleasure bringing this show to you. We love doing it and we can't wait to see you ahead of a huge Alabama week next time. Yeah, enjoy. Hopefully another Gators win. We'll see you guys next week. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.